VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, March the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is sitting in the producer's chair. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call and get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, the cold snap continues. So it's in the minus 20s with the windshield right across the island, even colder in Labrador. But get this. Sometime today, the daytime high in the St. John's metro region will be minus 8. That's the warmest it's been in over a week. So still chilly and slick out there too. Uh, For those of you who are lucky enough to see the delight that is the northern lights of the Aurora Borealis, especially out in central and maybe even further a little bit north, so that was outstanding. But coming up tonight, if you have a clear sky, you may indeed be able to see another... Brilliant sight in the sky. So, tonight, Venus, some people refer to as the evening star or the morning star, depending on where it is in the sky, and Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system, will come together. They'll appear to come together, even though they'll be hundreds of millions of kilometers apart, but Randy Atwood, who's a contributor to the program regarding things in the sky and astronomical issues, he's the former executive director of the Royal Astronomical Society, he's going to join us to tell us about what we can expect in the night sky tonight regarding Jupiter and Venus coming together. All right, a couple of good sports notes here. If you've ever been to any minor sports activities, and when there's a game being played, sometimes, far too often, the parents of the players get carried away, and they take out some of their frustrations on the referees, on the officials. It's really distasteful stuff to see, and it does happen a lot. Now, hockey gets a bad reputation for it, but take it from me, having gone to see minor sports played in a variety of different areas and arenas and fields and pitches, it happens everywhere. For the Newfoundland Hockey Association, they've gone ahead and made a change to mimic what was brought forward in Quebec in 2020. And that's in an effort to try to temper the anger of the frustrated parent. So now referees under the age of 18, as opposed to wearing the old red armbands indicating the head referee for the game, they're wearing green armbands. That says, I'm under 18, I'm a new official, I'm still learning it, the game is difficult to officiate, so apparently it's having some success. Some of the young referees who are now wearing the green armband say they've seen and experienced much less vitriol come from parents than in years past when they were wearing the red. Because, yes, they're young. And very few, if any, of the players on the pitch or on the ice are going to make a living at it. So I always get a little bit frustrated when I see some of the parents really losing their mind uh, at some of these minor sporting events. But if you see them wearing green, it means they're under the age of 18. Maybe, just maybe, cut them some slack. Okay. So the Canadian Soccer Association has uh, announced six historic clubs will be recognized as Canada Soccer Organizations of Distinction. Those awards will be presented at the annual awards banquet coming up in St. John, New Brunswick. So here's the six clubs. North Shore United Football Club in British Columbia, Edmonton Ital Canadians in Alberta, of course, the Windsor Croatia Club in Ontario, West Indies United in Toronto, Lakeshore uh, Soccer Club in Quebec, and the Felians, Double A or Athletic Association here in the city of St. John's. So that's a wonderful distinction for the Felians Athletic Association, originally established as the old Felian Athletic Association in 1899. St. John's Club has been playing ever since, won a couple of titles, both on the men's and the women's senior side. So congratulations to the Felians, a proud bunch to say the very, very least. And here's a couple of athletes of note who had injury-riddled careers. 
but still are legends of their various sports. It was today in 1969, the Mick. Mickey Mantle announced his retirement after 18 seasons with the New York Yankees, 536 home runs, a 298 batting average over the course of his career, the great Mickey Mantle. And in 1970, Bobby Orr with the Boston Bruins, of course, became the first NHL defensive to score 25 goals in a single season. All right, let's talk some travel. So it was on this date in 1912, a fellow named Albert Berry did something that I would never consider doing. He was the first person to jump out of a moving airplane with a parachute. I would never do that. But let's stick to some travel issues. So we all know the difficulty with which is traveling in and out of this province and the expense associated with it. And yes, the expense of traveling inside our own province. So two of the big three telecom companies are going to raise their fees for when you are roaming outside the country. All right, starting on the 8th of March, TELUS is going to charge their customers $14 a day when they roam on their devices down in the United States, $16 a day when they do it internationally. That's an increase from 12 and 15 respectively. Bell, doing something very similar, raising its U.S. roaming rate uh, from 12 to 13 and internationally 15 to 16. So there has been apparently some break on our cell phone bills, even though I don't see it or feel it. But the problem just remains here. And I mean, when we're all trying to be very thrifty and mind our coppers, the cell phone bill is extremely frustrating. So here it is. Canadians, we know this to be true, pay some of the highest telecom bills in the world. And that's regarding numerous reports coming from the international community. So here's for context. Canadians pay seven times more for a gigabyte of data than people in Australia, 25 times more than people in Ireland and France, 1,000 times more than people in Finland. So we're getting fleeced. Right? We know it to be true, so if you're going to be traveling abroad, be wary of these roaming fees that you're going to be paying. All right, talk about some of the applications on our phone. This is getting a lot of attention. Some people are mocking and ridiculing the federal government's decision to do what they've done in the European Commission and in the United States, is to ban, to delete TikTok off government devices. All right, so there's a lot to this story. It's actually more than I think where people are giving it credit for. So now the Newfoundland Labrador government is considering following suit and banning TikTok on government devices. You know, when people mock it, the issue is, you know, there's dozens and dozens of pages in the uh, terms of agreement with TikTok. People don't read them, right? I mean, when's the last time you read dozens of pages for a service agreement to put an application on your phone? So the problem is, is that the Chinese government may indeed have access to it, and TikTok knows a lot about you. So very precise GPS data. They know your contacts that are in your phone or on your device. They see your calendar, information about what kind of device you're using, what operating system, your location. And so they can actually have access to uh, people who are connected with your phone. So the problem, so say so-called experts in the area, they say it could indeed lead to more cyber attacks. We don't know exactly how the Chinese government may indeed be using it. So there's a lack of transparency coming from them. And we do know that cyber attacks are becoming more frequent and more costly. The cyber attack that we're just getting over in this province, or even I don't even know if we're fully over it, is the hack of the Meditech system and the healthcare delivery. That was back in October 2021. So the reports are quite clear. 60% of all cyber attacks in 2022 were aimed at energy companies and utility companies. So that's obviously hugely problematic. Add into it our healthcare information or what have you. So if there's something that may indeed be nefarious, some experts are also saying maybe we're overreaching and overthinking this one, but if it increases the potential for a cyber attack, whether it be on you as an individual installation of malware or hacking your personal information and sharing it to who knows who for who knows what, 
and especially when we're talking about access to government devices and the information that might be on those. So anything to do to protect our own privacy and to reduce the possibility of a cyber attack probably sounds like a good idea. But people use TikTok and complain about all kinds of other applications, especially ones created by the government. And uh, fair enough, I get it. But at the same time, complaining about government apps while using what feels like very innocuous applications, like remember the work that was done by, uh, what's James's last name here? The reporter that used to be from here, was working here? I can't remember, James. Oh, James McLeod. About uh, Tim Hortons and what they knew about you. But TikTok, apparently, is probably not your friend, and who knows what they're up to when they're digging around your phone. So anyway, you want to take that on, we can do it. But let's, let's stick with the whole business regarding China. Okay, so there's a new report out there talking about foreign interference in the 2021 election. And this was an analysis done by the Critical Election Incident Public Protocol Group, a bunch of senior federal public servants, a bunch of representatives from national security agencies, and they say that there was no foreign interference that threatened Canada's ability to have a free and fair election in 2021. We can indeed take this with a bit of a grain of salt. Morris Rosenberg was the chair of this public service body to prepare this independent report. It's worth noting that Mr. Rosenberg also served as CEO of the Trudeau Foundation from 2014 to 2018. So, okay. They say maybe the election wasn't compromised to the point where we were unable to have a free and fair election. But that does not take away from the fact, and this is two sides to this particular story. Look, we, I'm going to keep beating this drum because the integrity and people's faith in elections is going to be so critically important going forward. So if there were some 11 candidates funded and supported by Beijing in the 2021 election, we have to know more about it. To that end, you know, there's also some real legitimate concerns about the intelligence agency, CSIS, and maybe some leaks coming from it in an effort to drive the story. CSIS should not be leaking anything, but... We do need to know more about this. And who knew what when? Was the Prime Minister warned about this stuff and asked to revoke the nomination of one particular Chinese-supported candidate? So as much as we can see some reports and some different point of views and the partisanship and politics that will always play a role here, it's time to back most of that out and let someone independent of government, a judicial inquiry, a public inquiry, because it's going to be to our collective demise that if an election's to come in the future, people are unwilling to accept the results. Because Elections Canada has been a very efficient, effective, and has operated free and fair elections. That has got to be a key focus, regardless of what party you support. So, the tale of two different reports on that front. But anyway, there you go. Yesterday, we had a very disturbing call that was spurred on by an extraordinary, a, horrif a horrific email that I was sent by a lady named Stacy, regarding the fact that her father had been seriously beaten in a long-term care facility on the dementia ward. And I suppose because I saw the pictures myself, they haunted me throughout the day because I couldn't stop thinking, what about if that was my mother? You know, it, it was just the pictures tell the tale. So there's a lot to this story. The seniors advocate Susan Walsh is speaking out about it, not as an individual case, but the concept and the, the thoughts of violence on the wards, dementia included. And asking for compassion, not only to the man who was on the receiving end of the beating, but it is absolutely fair to point out that the person who offered the beating, we don't know their state of mind, the status of their dementia, whether or not they even knew what they were doing. So, okay, I get it. 
But still, something has to give. When we talk about the review that the province is putting forward regarding long-term care and personal care homes on a variety of fronts, we've got to add to not only the separating of seniors and the violence in some of these wards, but we also need to put these questions into play. When we talk about restraints, because that was a thought for many who uh, reacted to the story yesterday, you know, there was a story not so long ago that there was this one gentleman on a dementia ward, and he used to wander around. And because of it, he was placed in restraints. And this fellow who beat up this poor, poor man, he's done it in the past. He has hit people in the past. So here are some of the numbers to consider. And hopefully these will be evaluated inside this review. The number of patients in long-term care that are in physical restraints. The average in this province is 14.2% of residents are in restraints. The Canadian national average is 6.5%. We need to know why. There's also concern regarding the amount of antipsychotic drug use in long-term care. In this province, 38.3% of the residents are receiving an antipsychotic drug. In Canada, the national average is 21.9. We need to know why. Is this simply a staffing issue? It can't be that much different regarding the types of seniors and types of ailments that they have or suffer with or deal with on a daily basis. So those numbers are uh, outstanding. Or, I don't know if that's the right word, antipsychotic drug. 38.3 in the province, 21.9 on the national average. Living in restraints, 14.2% in this province, the national average is 6.5. So we need to, I think, we should factor those in to the review of long-term care because that's a big looming question. You know, and if it's simply about staff, then, of course, we need to know why so that we can try to find solutions for and address those numbers. But anyway, we're expecting a call from the FFAW today about the macro stock and the petition that they're bringing forward. And, of course, that's important. They see a lot of anecdotal evidence about the strength of the stock and the fact there was a moratorium here. But in a migratory stock that we share with the United States, they continued with their mackerel fishery last year, albeit with a reduced quota. Some of this is the inability for DFO to have conducted science. So the federal government spent $788 million for three new offshore fishery science vessels. Two are in the Atlantic, one the uh, CCGS John Cabot here in St. John's. But because of breakdowns, unplanned maintenance, uh, refits, uh, both new and old science vessels, and the lack of parts there for a long stretch of time, DFO is unable to carry forward one of their key mandates, and that's the compilation of data to make legitimate decisions based on uh, total allowable catch. Now they've entered into a three-year agreement with the folks uh, at the Atlantic Groundfish Council. DFO is now going to be chartering. They've already started. Chartering industry vessels for two to six week periods to do out, go out and do some science or ecosystem surveys throughout Atlantic Canada. So imagine we spent almost $800 million on three new vessels. And now add to it, DFO is going to have to rely on chartering vessels belong to harvesting organizations, large and small. So that's happening. We'll see what the FFAW has to say about that. But I guess getting the science done is the key, period, right? Isn't it? Anyway, we want to tackle it. And sticking with the, on the water. There's a court case coming, I believe it begins today, if not today, tomorrow. Eco-Justice is taking the federal government to court, asking for the decision to greenlight or to release the Beta Nord project from its environmental assessment. So one of the key areas that they're fo po uh, focused on is that we use a variety of different references to cleaner or greener oil. There's no such thing as green oil. There simply is not. But the thought coming from the federal government and from Equinor and the province is that the emissions regarding the production of the oil, the extraction of the oil at Beta Nord, is much less than other areas where oil is being produced. 
The key for eco-justice, they say, is that it doesn't include the downstream emissions, which is true. So you see various numbers being thrown around. Emissions at Baden Order estimated to be about 10 to 18 percent of overall emissions. Okay, so there is a lot of downstream to be considered, but still, regardless, if oil is going to be used, and it will be for an undetermined amount of time, there's going to be lots of applications for fossil fuels in the future. There is going to be reduction, and people will change their carbon footprint, but oil still will be in play for quite a long time. And doesn't it just make sense that if oil is going to be used, trying to make sure that it's coming from the fields that have reduced emissions compared to other fields which are, are much dirtier? So, you know, while some of the campaigns here, like Build Right Here, brought forward by Trades NL, and, you know, Equinor kind of feels like and sounds like they're not going to do any of that work here. All the top sides, the hull and everything to be done somewhere in Asia, possibly. They are talking about more subsea infrastructure work to be done, probably double what was estimated at the beginning. They make vague reference to increased monetary benefit to the province. But Ecojustice has taken the feds to court on that front, which is an interesting one. And we're always open to talk about the upper Churchill conversation because there's a lot on the line there, even though there's a lot of unknowns, even to, as to what's being discussed in particular. A couple of quick notes here. Someone sent me an email overnight saying, boy, you sure let the Gordon Pinson story go quickly. Oh, no. Oh. More than happy to talk about one of the prestigious Newfoundlanders of all time, Gordon Pinson, dead at the age of 92, Grand Falls native. We all know the legacy he leaves behind, so we're more than happy to talk about uh, Mr. Pinson here on this program. If you'd like to share a story, personal or otherwise, let's do it. Also, some concerns being voiced in some corners where, you know, with the sell-off of churches, to come up with compensation dollars for the victims at Mount Cashel, and Gerald Squire's work that was auctioned off at the Bartlett Auction House. So a couple of really important pieces of work. You know, th the thought was, well, should the province protect this art? And, you know, have it on display wherever, at the rooms, what have you. So there was two pieces in particular. The Last Supper and the Stations of the Cross, they were originally created by squires for the Mary Queen of the World Roman Catholic Church in Mount Pearl. Estimated to go between fifty dollars and $80,000. I don't know the appetite of the general public to see the government spend that kind of money on art, but protecting the work of squires, and that means it doesn't mean it's not protected, it was hanging proudly in some private citizen's residence, but someone wanted me to throw that out there, so we just did. <coughs> And very quickly, we're Stella. I'm going to keep that going, too, because that's a bigger story than just the presence of a Portuguese water dog in the community. And, of course, we're on Twitter. Stella isn't anymore. They deactivated uh, Stella's Twitter account yesterday. But we're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineatvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to start with Vera. Vera was in the queue yesterday. We didn't get to her, but she wants to talk about Western Memorial psychologists aren't taking outpatients. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Vera. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, I was wondering about Western Memorial Hospital. The psychiatrists in the hospital, so they tell me, only take inpatients. They are not allowed to treat outpatients. Were they ever treating outpatients? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, uh, not in the hospital, I suppose, but they were in their own office. But that's cut out, you know, I don't suppose they were allowed. I don't know. Anyway, whatever happened... I've had a doctor for 12 years, and I've had mental illness for 40 years, and he's the only doctor that ever helped me, the one that I had for 12 years. I was on medication for 13 years. When I was at the drugstore one time, the young pharmacist said to me, do you know that the one of the pills you're taking causes Parkinson's? 
and I, well, I was shocked, and I was working at the time, and of course, I didn't realize what would happen to me when I gave them up cold turkey, and I went through hell. And I went a long time before, like I said, this doctor helped me. So where where is that particular doctor now? Oh, he's in the hospital in Wits Memorial, as far as I know. I don't know where he is. He could be gone, but I can't get his phone number. I called the hospital and asked could I have uh, talked to him or have an appointment, and they said he is only looking after inpatients. Now, if I wanted to, I could go in in the hospital on the fourth floor and see him, but I don't want to do that. Right, and so if you don't require admission, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit confused by the story. So when you used to see him, did you go to his private office, or was it always at a clinic at the hospital, or how did it work? Oh, yeah, I used to go to the clinic at the hospital, okay. and then when he had his private practice, I went there. But whatever happened, he closed down that, I don't know. But anyway, he was not allowed to have any outpatients. And they st- I know the doctors are busy, but who makes the rules on who they can see? Don't the doctors know how many p- patients they can give appointments to? Well, I would imagine, yes, especially if they have like hospital privileges plus their own private office or private clinic. So, yes, you would think that they would have the capacity to do their work at the hospital and see patients who don't require admission. So, yeah, I'm again, I'm a bit confused. I don't know if this would come from the regional health authority, but I assume so. Well, anyway, this is what they tell me, that he's not allowed to take inpatients. And, uh, you know, people with bipolar, which I've had for all these years, go to hell. I mean, rich and poor are the facts. Uh, Justin uh, Trudeau's mother had it for years before she, right. she would, they were found out what she went through. I had her book. She went through hell. And she's on medication the rest of her life. I had her book, and, and you should read it because I'm telling you what she went through. I thought I went through hell, but she went through more than I went through. You know, I did read it, uh, and in fact, I met and interviewed Margaret Trudeau at the uh, Delta Hotel one afternoon when she was here to speak at a mental health, uh, either dinner or a conference, I can't remember which one it was, but yes, I am familiar with uh, Miss Trudeau's story. So, what are you going to do then, Vera? So, are you able to get your prescriptions refilled, or oh, what? Oh, yes, my, my family doctor is an excellent doctor. She's a Newfoundlander, and my psychiatrist was a Newfoundlander, both of them from the Northern Peninsula. Excellent doctors. She gives me gives me my prescriptions, and I take it to the my drugstore. Sends it up to me. So, well, but I want you know even talking to your doctor, your psychiatrist helps you. Well, of course it does, and people and need long term access. To him, call me to even call my daughter to speak to her about my condition. He's a really wonderful man, and I don't see why I can't get in to see him once in a while. But there's so many people out there that need help. You know what they do with some mental patients? I'll tell you what happened in my lifetime. Don't go to, don't call the police. Please don't call the police for mental illness patients. They only put you in jail, prison, or shoot you. Uh, Vera, have you had interaction with the police? Pardon? Have you had to interact with the police? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I have. I have, and was in jail all day when I was in my 80s for for crying. 
What happened? And, they, and then I'll tell you what happened. And they had the nerve to call me and ask me for a donation. They were putting out a book, and they would get credit for it. And there was a lady opposite that called me. And I said, I told her what happened. And I said, please, don't ever call me again. And she said, I wouldn't blame you, ma'am. So I'm not, I don't, I got no faith in the police, as like I said, that what happened to my friend 20 years ago, and I still remember that it was yesterday. They shot him five times. And his mother was poor mother. She died only this summer. She was watching, locked in the police car. And you call that help? No, I don't. Um, so I am going to make uh, quick contact with the Western Regional Health Authority to see if that's the, a decision that they would make and maybe give you a bit more information about it. But just to pick up on one thing you said, Vera, that one of the pills you're taking may indeed lead to Parkinson's. For everybody out there who has a variety of prescriptions, and the key would be five or more different drugs that you're taking, it's always a good idea to get a careful review. You can do that with your pharmacist in your own drugstore, or you can go to the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. So get those reviews done of the prescriptions you're taking because, you know, maybe symptoms have waned. You might not need one drug any longer. Maybe one has a newly understood uh, potential issue associated with it. So get a review of your prescriptions please uh vera i'm going to follow up with western health to see what i can find out and i wish you well anything else you want to say when i was when i was admitted to hospital i was uh, like i said unpilled for 13 years and when i gave them up i went through hell and my doctor called the psychiatrist in st john and he said the woman was only supposed to anti pills for one month for slight depression. I ended up 13 years, like I said. And, I mean, who thought was that? Fair question. Uh, I appreciate your time, Vera. I hope you're doing well. I will follow up regarding the inability. I am doing well, thanks to my doctor. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you very much. Take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Morning, John. I'm uh, calling about uh, CBCNN, about their weather forecasting. Uh, their weather forecasting starts in BC and ends up in Nova Scotia. <laughs> right. Mostly it's about BC and Ontario. Now, there's one particular forecaster there, Chris Murphy. I can call him a lot of names, and none of them good. But he shows nothing but favoritism to B.C., Ontario, and a scattered time he'll mention Nova Scotia. I think that we're being ostracized, and I don't know what else you can call it. But yeah, We uh, get left out a lot in that type of stuff. Even in some government literature that's been published in the past, they'll make reference of coast to coast, from Halifax to Vancouver. I'm like, oh, my God, boys. I mean, seriously, we've been part of the country since 1949. You think they could wrap their mind around it? Well, that's their mentality. But when they're looking for votes, they know where, they know where to come. And they know where to push a couple of dollars. We get yeah. we get a dollar and somebody else gets a hundred thousand. 
yeah, I'm not sure 100% what uh, you're referring to there, but yeah, we get left out of some of those conversations quite frequently, and it's irritating, but I think it says more about the people who leave us out than it does about us. I mean, if you cannot understand that coast to coast to coast in this country includes all the way to Cape Spear, then that really says volumes about you. Uh, you used to really bother me. Now I kind of roll my eyes and think, you know, how stunned are you at all that you don't realize that there's further east in Canada than Nova Scotia? But all you've got to do is look at who we got representing us in Ottawa. Well, what would they have to do with the weather forecast? Uh, nothing, but a lot more to do with uh, talking about our province. Okay. We had a silent seven. Now we got a silent six. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's lots of questions to be asked of our liberal members of parliament. That's for sure. And we're happy to ask him here on this show, John. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning? No, and you do ask him, and you don't mind the asking them direct questions. No problem there. Sometimes they can answer, and a lot of times it's almost like saying, no comment, no comment, no comment. Well, it feels like it. There's certainly lots of tap dancing and tiptoeing. Uh, one more thing, Patty. Quickly, John. I got, a, I got a call the other day from somebody in Ontario asking if I was going to support uh, Tony Wakeham. And I said, why? Well, he said, we want to uh, put you on our voting list. I said, yeah. And I said, where are you calling from? Oh, I'm calling from Ontario. Uh, Do you have an email address? I said, no, I don't. Well, he said, if you want to support Mr. Wakeham, he said, you can phone this number. And he said, a voicemail will come on and they'll direct you to press two. I said, yeah. Patty, I, I don't know where this is all coming from, but I'm after getting about uh, 20 phone calls from across Canada and even into the States. This is the security service. We have some authorized charges on your credit card. Yeah, if you're foolish enough to press one or two, you can be on the hook for a lot of money. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd be very wary of anything that comes unprovoked across your landline and, I suppose, and or your mobile device because the scammers are out there. And tis the season, too. When tax season comes, they seem to amp it up a little bit as well. Oh, yes. Anyway, my advice is if you don't recognize the number and it's from other province, forget it. Fair enough. Appreciate this, John. And uh, as for phoning this uh, police line about uh, scam artists, you might as well turn around and stick your finger up in the air and say, whoopee, because I've tried phoning that number and I never got nothing. So, Patty. Thanks, John. uh, I'm going to ask you again. Why don't you run for government? I have very little interest in it, to be honest. (laughs) But, Patty, you would make a great politician. <laughs> I don't know if that's you an insult or a compliment. <laughs> no, that's a compliment. Okay. You ask questions and you demand answers. John, I've got to get off to the break. I appreciate the kind words and the time this morning. Okay, buddy. Take care. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Christine, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. Thank you. How about you? No, not too bad. Uh, first, the topic I just wanted to briefly mention is uh, the RCMP who was charged with trafficking cocaine in Corner Brook. Yeah, I saw that story this morning. So I'd, uh, i i got to say hats off to whoever done the investigation, and uh, I'd like to see an investigation done with all the uh, detachments tell you the truth because I think there's uh, quite a bit of that probably going on in our detachments, and it's sad to know it when these are the ones that are supposed to be protecting our safety and stuff. And uh, with all of our problems, I mean, gone to the wayside with the drugs, and then we have people that are supposed to be, you know, uh, our protectors will say for safety. Well, they're out there policing the drug world. So, yes, there was a tip brought forward to Michael King, who's the director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Serious Incident Response Team, CERT NL. They did the investigation, and Constable Michael Han has been charged with uh, uh, possession of cocaine with the purpose of trafficking, unauthorized use of, of a computer, and breach of trust. So the court, they'll be, he'll, he'll have his day in court uh, sometime mid-April. Yes, so uh, like I said to uh, whoever, I hope uh, yeah, I, I hope uh, he continues on with uh, uh, investigations with all the departments of the RCMP stations. Tell you the truth, uh, it was so strange because I spoke to I don't know if it was Jolene, the one that does the tackling for the RCMP there in November. Uh, I was trying to get hold to the uh, commander of the RCMP actually. And I said to her, you know, I said, well, I think we have dirty RCMP officers. I mean, for the drug, the amount of drugs going on and nothing happening. Anyway, I mean, of course, she didn't really appreciate that. But I mean, that's my opinion on it. And uh, the other thing is uh, the uh, Gull Island uh, project. We all know that's going to go ahead. I mean, they're not in tax and planning uh, for no, for nothing. And I mean, uh, it's going to go ahead sooner than people realize. It's just going to go ahead right under our, our, our feet, really. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, great to see. I mean, uh, there'll be lots of jobs and things going on. But uh, I really hope that our uh, uh, politicians uh, have things put in place uh, uh, for Happy Valley Goose Bay and uh, all Lake Melville area, actually, uh, for the Gull Island Project, if it goes, because our price has gone now in the drugs and there's nothing going on and nothing happening and no one getting got. I can't imagine the drugs that's going to be in our community if the Gull Island Project goes. And all they're worried about is the mighty dollar. Okay, just a couple of quick questions, Christine. Why are you so sure that Gull Island is going to proceed? Well, I mean, like uh, the Quebec Premier didn't go out to uh, meet with the, uh, the Newfoundland Premier for no reason. And then, I mean, our Inu uh, uh, leaders are out there talking. And uh, I know, I know, like I'm, I'm after speaking to a couple of uh, uh, the Inu people, and uh, uh, I know that it's going, and it's going soon. Okay. Uh what what do you mean by the relationship between Gull Island and drugs? You just mean more people earning big money and then consequently using more drugs? Is that what you mean? Is that what you mean? Well, exactly. I mean, okay. that Muskrat, Muskrat Falls project uh, went ahead here. And, uh, uh, I mean, there was always drugs, I mean, uh, right across the world. Uh, but, I mean, unfortunately, the uh, Muskrat Falls went here. And, I mean, all the big money and then uh, uh, the money stopped. And, I mean... Like I said, I never ever seen uh, 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 Goose Bay or, or Labrador uh, ever so bad uh, with the drugs that's going on here now. 
Okay. Uh, but you mentioned the Inu. Now, Inu Nation Grand Chief Etienne Rich and then Peter Panashway, they have both said that until there are decisions made, whether it be the court challenge against Hydro-Quebec for billions of dollars regarding the Upper Churchill, they say with the rate mitigation plan here, they'd lose about a billion dollars in revenue at Muskrat Falls. They say Gull Island is dead. It will not happen until those two things are rectified. So th- that's just some of the news that we've read regarding the Inu Nation's position on Gull. Yeah, well... Like I said, boy, uh, people are going to be in for a rude awakening because uh, it's going to go and it's going to go. It's going to go sooner than people think. I don't think you're wrong. I think Gull Island will get developed. Now, hopefully, it's a vastly different approach than we, than was taken at Muskrat Falls. You know, like having some customers outside of us to uh, purchase the power because we can't handle any of that power. So that's two thousand two hundred twenty-five megawatts, as opposed to eight hundred twenty-four at Muskrat. It's a huge development. Yes, it is. And uh, and uh, and like I said, I mean, it's good that the project uh, is going to start uh, and uh, uh, people need to work. Uh, but like I said, I just uh, I just hope and pray that they uh, have big force enforcement here, uh, here in uh, Labrador. And OK, because like. I mean, it does stand to reason that in places that have seen economic boom, whether it be because of a big mega project or oil development, we know the problems that they face, for instance, in Fort McMurray with the numbers of people and illicit drugs that are being used and sold and abused. Uh, Christine, I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number three. Jim, you're on the air. Uh, Yes. I'd like to speak regarding the lack of affordable building lots in St. John's. And the area I'm looking at is the area between Pity Harbour and Bay Bulls. That uh, that hill is going up there. Okay. You got Surrey Street and on Water Street West. You got Bay Bulls Big Pond. The land is owned by the city of St. John's. You got the Southern Shore Highway. You got the Goulds Bypass. You're pretty close to Transcanada Highway. What a place to develop affordable building lots. I'm talking about building lots for people who got low income, probably you can say 150000 or $200,000. But what an ideal place. And that could be a 5, 10, 15, 20-year program. They could run a road right, right on top of that and then run a road down to the southern shore, down to the southern shore highway there. Yeah, because, I mean, if you go in towards Maddox Grove, Petty Harbor, you can come out the other side, uh, up right into the Ghouls. So there's lots of contact points there. And the, kind of, the way you come through that area to get out of the ghouls is right across the street from the, uh, what do they call it, the back line. So you're right there with access to the highway, yeah? But, but, but what, what a place. Look at the jobs that that could create. Look at it. I, I, when the Americans moved out of St. John's down here, they took three par- par- they took the land down there, and they broke up in tr- three different parcels. And I was lucky enough I got a piece of land in the second part of that. Okay. Other than that, God knows where my wife and I and our five children would have been living. Now, has anyone? I don't know if you can answer my question. We can take electricity and generate it for wind power and packages to send over to Germany. Yeah. Why can't we do it with electricity that's generated with water power? Hydro. Hydro, yeah. I'm I'm not sure what the question means. I'm sorry. So how can we can package? We can. We can generate electricity and package it through wind power. Can we do the same thing through water power? Well, they use the electricity from the wind power to convert it to hydrogen and, and transport it with ammonia. So, you know, hydroelectric... I, I, I don't know anything about all this technical, 
But I'm just saying, if we can tra- generate electricity one way and transport it, can we do the same thing the other way? Uh, short answer is no. Uh, hydroelectricity can only be transferred on transmission lines, so unless you can have a line coming from a hydro dam to whatever yeah. customer, whatever consumer, whatever region, that's and, the only and, way they can transmit Quebec. it. And Quebec had our little our old dictator, Joey Smart, went over a barrel with his pants down with empty pockets, and he really whipped it to us. And when the premier came down from Quebec with his hand, Handout. He had a handout looking for an agreement, but he didn't have a big check in the other hand to compensate Newfoundland for all the money that they lost and for how how they, they took advantage at the position that we were in. Look at them, the twenty-eight billion they they made. Yeah, I don't imagine there's any sort of compensation coming our way. I don't. Uh, I don't think so. Anyway, but I guess it all depends what questions are actually being discussed or what was actually said in that very short two-hour meeting, and what the plan is for the negotiating team that's been struck to have further meetings or negotiations or conversations or whatever they're doing. It'd be nice to know a bit more about what's going on. But give our premier credit. At least he set up committees to look at it, look at the various things. Yeah, well, I mean, 2041 is right around the corner. I know it feels like a long way away, but in reality, it's a blink of an eye when we're talking talking about, you know, a renegotiation for the next 18 but, years. And that but you know why he wants it? Quebec wants it because the, the mining up there, the, 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 they want to process the, the minerals that they're taking out of the ground up there. And in the meantime, the natives of northern Quebec is taking the Quebec government to court. Because the Quebec government went up part of the north, developed electricity there. Anyway, took them to court and they lost. Yeah, the Inu Nation is taking the Hydro-Quebec to court over the Upper Churchill as well. Billions of dollars in reparations they're looking for. But then, you know, up in northern Quebec is taking them taking to court now okay. and saying Quebec wants to go up further north and generate more electricity. And, Quebec, and the native people are saying, no, this is our land. You cannot come up here and develop. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. Uh, yeah, and I mean, there's 15% of the power Hydro-Quebec exports or sells comes from the Upper Churchill, whether it be for domestic use or export, whatever. They do have a need of for that power, so we do have maybe a better bargaining position than we have in years past. We actually have a guest coming up that we're they're going to talk pro- about that. Pro- also anyway. processing the minerals that are taken on the they ground. Are. Of course they are. I appreciate the time, Jim. Thanks for the call this morning. Okay. Anyway, give, give some thought to what I'm saying. I'll probably I have to phone the mayor Will do. and Ron Ellsworth, but if you just stop and look at it, it makes so much sense. I don't know if there's ever been plans for that type of development, but I will give it some thought, that's for sure. But, I mean, it makes so much sense. It's, Everything is there. Everything. Understood, Jim. I have to get to the break. And, Thanks and for the time. People, even to give people a, making... There's lots of families in this, in this city got less than $100,000 coming in. Give people like that a break. Give me, sell them a building lot. The land down in the east end of St. John's at the prison, last time I checked, was a 40 by 80 building lot. They were selling service building lot. They were selling for $250,000. It's pretty dear. Uh, that's, I mean, the, the average person. Yes, I know. Point made, Jim. I understand where you're coming from, and but I do have to go. I can't afford that. Understood. Take good care of yourself, Jim. Thanks for the, call, the time. Okay, that's my thought anyway. All that's the best. My thought on it. Take care. Thanks, Jim. Everybody got an opinion. I welcome the, yours. Easiest thing to do is Thanks be for the call, Jim. I got to go, Jim. I appreciate I'm the time. Not be critical and negative. Okay, thank take you. Care. Goodbye. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the former executive director of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. That's Randy Atwood. Good morning, Randy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, glad to be back. So a couple of nights ago, people basically in central Newfoundland had the opportunity to see Aurora Borealis in all its glory. But tonight in the night sky, going to be another convergence of a couple of bright lights. What are we going to see? Yeah, that's right. You know, the northern lights, uh, you really can't predict them. Yeah, they just they come up when there's some activity on the sun. One thing we can predict is the positions of the planets in the sky. Um, the five uh, naked eye, what we call naked eye planets that you can see without a telescope are uh, Mercury, Venus, uh, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And uh, tonight, uh, just because of the alignment of uh, Jupiter and Venus, uh, they will appear uh, to be right beside each other in the sky just after sunset, about a half hour after sunset when it starts to get dark. If it's clear, look towards the west, and you'll see two bright stars. Uh, they look like stars. The, the way you can tell uh, <clears throat> it, something is a planet is generally it's brighter than all the other stars in the sky, but also it doesn't twinkle. And uh, Venus and Jupiter will appear uh, very, very close together, uh, Venus being the brighter one, and uh, this is uh, something that uh, people have been watching over the past few weeks as as uh, as they get closer. Now they're not really getting closer it's right. because the, as as the Earth moves in its orbit, the perspective uh, changes. Uh, just to give you some numbers here, Jupiter tonight is 864 million kilometers away from us, and Venus is only 200 million kilometers away from us. So Venus is about four times closer than Jupiter, uh, but it, it looks like they're right beside each other tonight. Yeah, and they'll if be. Not clear to, if it's not clear tonight, keep watching the next clear night because they will just begin to move apart from each other over the next couple of weeks, and ultimately Jupiter will set into the, uh, the glare of the uh, setting sun. Amazing stuff, yes, because it's an appearance or perspective because they do remain hundreds of millions of kilometers apart. In addition to both uh, Jupiter and Venus, we're going to get a chance to get a little clearer look at maybe some of the moons of Jupiter. Well, the moons of Jupiter are always always visible if you've got uh, uh, a telescope. Uh, they they are uh, easily visible. The four four bright moons of Jupiter they're called the Galilean moons because the Galileo actually you know the first person who seriously pointed a telescope at the sky in uh, the early 1600s he he noticed them even with his his little uh, um, you know little telescope uh, and. Uh, very easy to see in a in a backyard telescope. Even I've seen uh, some of them with with a pair of binoculars. If you can hold the binoculars steady, and you if with a telescope you can watch them change position night to night as well. You know Venus is brighter than Jupiter because a it's it, it's closer, but also it's covered with white clouds. You, we can't with a telescope you can't see the the surface of Venus. All you see is a, it looks like a white uh, uh, billiard ball, uh, cue ball. Uh, but what's interesting is Venus is inside of the orbit of Earth, so it and Mercury, they don't appear to get very far from the sun. Venus is, is sometimes called the evening star because uh, it, it, it is either visible in the evening and sets, uh, you know, not long after the sun sets, after it gets dark, or rises in the morning, depending on what side of the orbit it's on. Jupiter, being outside of our orbit, we tend to catch up to it uh, every year, uh, and it, it can be seen uh, at, at times during the year. It can be seen all night long, as long as you know where to look. So does that mean that Venus and Jupiter, the conjunction is annual? 
Um, it, it more or less is. It, it's not all that rare. Uh, it, you know, all the planets are in the same plane. You know, think of them as all in a tabletop. So they all follow similar paths through the sky along something we call the ecliptic, although everyone knows it more uh, as the zodiac. Uh, all the zodiac, oh, zodiacal constellations, that's actually where the, the sun, the moon, and the planets all pass, and that's why they, it got so much attention when astrology was created you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But to astronomers, the, 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 uh, the zodiac or, or the ecliptic is where all the planets appear. And so as they you know they go around the the inner planets go around the sun faster you know we go around the sun once a year venus goes around the sun in less than a year jupiter takes 12 years saturn takes 30 years so the inner planets catch up to and pass the uh, the outer planets quite often and uh i don't know how many times i've seen a jupiter venus conjunction whether in the morning before sunrise or in the after or the, in the evening after sunset but it does happen quite regularly and and at least once every couple of years <clears throat> uh before we let you go that's interesting enough what's going on with the uh, the planet conjunctions this evening but how excited are you as a star or sky gazer with the artemis missions going back to the moon well, Artemis is, uh, yeah, it is, uh, how, do, how do I put this? I, you know, I, I got interested in space when I was a kid during Apollo and uh, during the 19, early, or during 1969, there was a flight every two months. Uh, so they were all ramped up to land on the moon uh, by the summer of 69. Artemis is a little bit different. Uh, you know, you're, you, the money isn't there. I don't think the interest is really there to push very quickly. So we're not going to see another Artemis mission for a year or two. Uh, there'll, there'll be a can of Canadian on board, which will be exciting. Uh, and they'll uh, essentially sweep once around the moon and come back to Earth. Um, I'm waiting to see the progress of Artemis. They're talking about landing people on the moon in 2025, 2026. Uh, I think that's a little optimistic. Uh, so I, I, to be quite honest, I, I'm not all that excited about it yet because they just haven't proved that they're, uh, they're going to be, uh, all that, uh, they don't seem interested, Patty, I guess is, is the way I'm yeah. saying they're, they're, you know, you hear a lot about it. We're going back to the moon, then we're going to Mars. And, and, you know, to me, Mars has always been a carrot on the end of a 20 year stick. And at this point it's more like a 30 year stick. So, um, uh, I think we'll just wait and see. Uh, there's a lot of uh, activity in, in putting the next Artemis rocket together and, and preparing for it. Uh, but already, you know, it, it's not that long since Artemis 1, and already they've announced a delay to Artemis 2. So I guess I, I'm sort of in a wait-and-see attitude, and uh, it'll be great to see people back on the moon. Uh, but the, even the lunar lander that SpaceX has made, I mean, I haven't – you know, they haven't even talked about testing that thing yet. So, you know, that's sort of my attitude. Fair enough. And people will ta ask, you know, the questions why. Initially, the space race was mm -hmm. as much about, you know, uh, sovereign nations and their bravado to say we got there first. So there will be some looming questions, whether it be about scientific discovery opportunities, economic benefits and otherwise. But, Randy, always appreciate you making time for the show. Thanks for this. All right, Patty, a pleasure. Talk take, again. Take good care. Bye-bye. Randy Atwood, the former executive director of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Time for the news. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Well, then there were three. First, it was Lloyd Parr to put his name forward to be the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. Then it was uh, Tony Wakeham. Now, former president of the PC Party has also joined the ranks, wanting to be the leader. That's Eugene Manning. And Eugene joined us on line number one. Good morning, Eugene. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show. First off, I heard you make reference in your announcement that, you know, you're, you're going to do more than simply listen to open line. Bite your tongue. <laughs> sure. Fair point, Daddy. Fair point. My apologies. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Uh, welcome to the program. So, you know, when when you walked away from being the president, there was some thought that you were going to be able weren't going to be able to be impartial regarding who should be the preferred leader. Do I have that right? Yes. Well, when after Chess resigned in uh, back in 2021, I knew I had very strong feelings about where the party needed to head and that direction to be. So I knew I wouldn't be remaining impartial for the for this race, whether I was running myself or supporting another candidate. So I didn't think it would have been fair for me to be setting those rules and dates when I knew I would be taking a stand one way or the other. So I thought it was best to step back to allow for a, a fair race. And again, I didn't know you were coming on, so I didn't have time to prepare. But also in your announcement, you made reference to the fact that you don't see that there's any plan in place. You have all parties either navigating or opposing a broken system as opposed to trying to fix it. What do you mean? Yes. What I mean by that is I see some good things that the government is doing. I also see there's a lot of room for opportunity there. And I think the underlying, the underlying issue we have uh, with politics today is I don't see a plan from government or otherwise on where we want to be in five years, 10 years, and a clear path on getting there. Um, look, we need leadership to, to lead the path and say, this is where we want to be, and here's the roadmap to get there. If you don't have a plan, Patty, um, you're you're in a boat without a paddle. You don't know where you're headed. And I think that's the real gap we have at, at the moment. This is a bit of a strange question, but where do you see those gaps? Because if government will say, well, we have plans like the Health Accord, and we've done some work with Rothschild and the Green Report and all these things, where are there gaps where there are no formalized plans in one industry, one set of public policies or another? Where are you seeing those big gaps? Well, no doubt, Patty. We've had uh, numerous commissions and reports, and I'm sure they're all uh, clicking dust on a shelf somewhere, but enacting those plans, a plan is only as good as how much of it is enacted. Of and we have to move on that. But I, I'd point no further than, in addition to what we have to do long-term, we have immediate concerns, whether it be in healthcare or otherwise, that should be addressed today, and we should be getting ahead of those. You know, there's a comprehensive suite of incentives and uh, you know, recruiting efforts ongoing. Where do you see some of the immediate fixes that government is not attending to as quick as you'd like to see them doing? Well, look, our doctor shortage, nurse shortage is not an issue just for Newfoundland Labrador. It's an issue across the country and across the world. But in the interim, there are a number of there are numerous areas we could be jumping on today. Um, I point no further than making sure that our healthcare providers are practicing to the full extent of their training, whether that be pharmacists or nurse practitioners. Um, I look no further. I don't know if you caught that article in the Star there yesterday that uh, ER deaths in Newfoundland and Labrador jumped 24 percent in the past year. That should be a massive concern to everyone. Absolutely. And I think Nova Scotia just this week rolled out waiting room care providers where they're going to have registered nurses patrolling the emergency rooms after someone has been triaged and assessed to make sure that the worsening conditions in those cases are, are caught. I, I hope that we're chasing all of those type of things to see an immediate impact on our delivery of health care today. Yeah, I mean, then there's always the conversation regarding the additional number of deaths based on, you know, former annual averages of deaths or numbers of deaths. So there's a lot to that. How do you get down to the emergency, uh, emergency room death number? Because I've kind of struggled to understand exactly how we investigate that, you know, whether it be 
the age of people or the, the severity of their symptoms maybe has a, a direct relationship with the inability to see a family doctor. Consequently, your condition worsens. Are those the types of angles you're thinking and talking about with the ER deaths? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, <clears throat> healthcare doesn't start when you show up in the emergency room. We need to be looking at preventative, preventative care, um, uh, pr- access to primary care, and we get back to the basics on that and we address it from the start. Then, look, I know in my own personal family, we have people who uh, refuse to go to the emergency room because they don't want a 12-hour wait. They're waiting till their condition is much worse. So by the time they get there, they're in a much worse condition than if they had seen their, their family doctor or if they had access to a family doctor a day or a week before. And, and those are the gaps that we've got to be closing today. Agreed. You know, there's one area that I speak to, and I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but some of the healthcare delivery that we could be availing of were not allowed because of the territorial issues regarding what doctors can do, what nurse practitioners can do, and licensed practical nurses or pharmacists, and up and down the line. They're, for the vast majority of these disciplines, they have the training, the accreditation, and the licensing to do more, but they're not allowed. So, you know, I know that requires some uh, legislation to be amended, but I think we can really ease the burden on the system a little bit anyway in the short term by addressing that. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, <clears throat> as easy as ordering and interpreting lab tests, whether they be nurse practitioners or pharmacists, there's, there's wins across the board that we can be finding in the immediate short term to address some of the, some of the issues, not all, no doubt, but some of the issues in healthcare. And uh, the quicker we get to that, I, I think people will see a real improvement. What does it mean to be an unelected person running for party leadership? What do you think the appetite is in the party? Because understanding we've had this before, right? I mean, even the current premier now was unelected when he first became leader of his party. Do you think that gives you an advantage or is it a disadvantage? How do you view it? Yeah, it, it's not a it, it's not a novel occasion for sure, but I, I think it gives me a distinct advantage. Um, I've been working in the construction industry. I, I run my own business for the past few decades. I build wharfs, actually, uh, Patty, in my in my day job. So I've been living and working around the around the island portion of the province, and sometimes up in Labrador for the last little while. And you you hear from people on the ground. And look, I think when you get institutionalized by government or whatnot, uh, sometimes you get lost on the fact that. You don't need an alphabet behind your name to have good ideas. And I hear a lot of ideas when I'm on the ground. And uh, I plan on taking the next few months to tour the province again and, and uh, <clears throat> meeting some new people and finding those strong ideas and bringing them back. And I think that's where I have a real strength in this, in this race. Are you bringing any specific uh, novel ideas to the table yourself? Yes, yes. We'll be obviously we have we have some that we've we've mentioned over the past few days and but more importantly is hearing from everyone else. We'll be rolling those out over the coming weeks and months. As you know, it's a long campaign and there's some challenges with that, but it also gives you an opportunity to, to hear from people across the province. Give us an example of an idea that we haven't heard broached by one party or another at this point. Uh coming back to an immediate impact in healthcare, uh <clears throat> Patty, and I point to healthcare related infections. And we have a challenge in this province, this country, once again, where some studies show that up to one in eight patients, when they enter our healthcare system, they're impacted, whether that be MRSA, staff, Cetaphil, and whatnot. And with our emergency rooms now running at over capacity, sometimes 120, 130%, we need to make sure that our custodian maintenance staff are fully staffed so that we have clean hospitals and sterile environments for, for people to work in. <clears throat> Not to mention that if these people then become infection prevention experts, as much as they are cleaning the hospital, it instills confidence in the patients, the visitors, and the doctors and nurses. And I think you would see a, a quick 
a, a quick improvement across the board. And if you instill that confidence and you provide those people with the staffing and the resources they need to keep our hospitals clean and friendly environments. If you're lucky enough or fortunate enough or you win the leadership race here, where would you like to run? Or would someone have to step aside so you could run in a by-election? Or what's the plan there? Because the most effective a leader can be is with a seat in the House. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And when I'm successful in October as being the leader of the PC party in Newfoundland and Labrador, we'll be taking a look at every opportunity to, to get me in the House and have me sit across and hold Andrew Fury and the Liberals to account. I look, I look forward to that day. Would you run in the first available by-election seat? Uh, yes, we'll be taking a look at every opportunity to get myself in the house as quickly as possible. I appreciate your time this morning, Eugene. Thanks for having me, Patty. Look forward to it. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Eugene Manning is the third person who put their hat in the ring to be the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the Upper Churchill. So there's been, look, I mean, I read some papers coming out of the province of Quebec. They're talking about this a lot. In this province, some focus on it, some, you know, lack of detail about what the negotiations, the negotiations look like at this point. Ted Sullivan, the man behind Uncle Gnarly's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Des Sullivan. You're on the air. Hi, Paddy. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you doing, Des? Good. So start with some generalities here first, so just pick your brain. So I know that the 2041 analysis report is in government's hands, and I'm sure there's some commercial sensitivities that we need to protect so we don't diminish our bargaining power here. But what do you make of the detail or lack thereof with the initial meeting between Fury and Legault? Well, I think you've you've, uh, centered the issue uh, extremely well. I was looking for some very key words from Premier Fury following his meetings with uh, Premier Legault, and I didn't hear them. <clears throat> and excuse me. And the the key words were that uh, Quebec would now recognize that Newfoundland uh, could, or and, and Labrador could export power through the province of Quebec as any other province would through another province's territory. I, 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 have to, I have a quote here that is really relevant to this situation and, and that you may be interested in, and it, it is very short. It says, Premier Lesage confirmed, quote, that Quebec would never permit anyone to build a transmission line or let others transport electricity from Churchill Falls to Quebec. We will never negotiate on no other ground than this, said the Globe and Mail back at the time. Now, we, I, would have expected, I would have expected the Premier to indicate very clearly that Quebec had moved away from this position. This is a fundamental principle of what we're getting involved in in terms of talking to Quebec. And, and just on top of that, if I might uh, just just uh, finish off that point in, in, a, in a particular way, we 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 all know uh, that uh, the uh, the American administration has has FERC rules uh, for transmission, allowing open access uh, from uh, uh, from other jurisdictions into the U.S. Concomitant with our ability to have uh, to be able to transmit is an acknowledgement by Quebec that we will have access to.
two FERC rules and be treated equally uh, with Hydro-Quebec in terms of this transmission. So, so my point is that if Premier Fury, which I would have expected him to do in the first five minutes of sitting down with Premier Legault, if he had said, Premier Legault, are you on side with treating Newfoundland as any other province in this country is treated, if we are equitable or if we are not them, then if, because if we're not, then obviously we're second-class citizens. But if we are uh, if we are going to be treated on that basis, then we have a discussion. We have a we we in fact, Patty, the negotiation is settled because once Quebec accepts that it will permit Labrador power to be transmitted to its province through its province down through the states and elsewhere on an equitable basis, then we are we uh, we are going to let the market. Take over from there. Sure. That might, you know, if there's any mention or discussion regarding Gull Island, that might happen organically. You know, there's also rules for uh, power import into the United States regarding monopolies providing power. Hydro-Quebec mm-hmm. lost their bid in the state of Maine. There was a referendum that shot down the transmission lines, which is, I think, going to mm-hmm. be the big hurdle because there's an appetite for uh, power like hydro in the northeast United States, even just in yep. the state of New York. Even if you just captured that market, you'd be able to sell virtually all of the 2,225 uh, 2, megawatts at Gull. Uh, another generic question before we dig down into some details. You know, Premier Fury talked about, you know, 15% of the power Hydro-Quebec sells domestically or, uh, or for export comes from the Upper Churchill. And because they have what he calls an urgent need for the power from the Upper Churchill and maybe some more additional capacity like Gull Island, that we hold a better hand than we have in the past. We have more levers than we've had in the past where we struck out every single time in the courts and what have you. Do we have a stronger position? We have a stronger position if we're prepared to use it. I'm not sure, frankly, uh, that the Premier uh, uh, perceives our strong position as I might or you might. Uh, and he hasn't articulated what that strong position is. It, 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 let's face it. Quebec has uh, – um, uh, uh, well, uh, let's, let's not prolong the point. Quebec had a 65-year contract – which uh, it, it didn't achieve through all uh, the, uh, the best means that, uh, that corporations would be allowed to today. But that's, that's, at this juncture, it's been recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada. It's water under the bridge. We have to accept that it occurred. It was a terrible contract. But nevertheless, to be fair to Quebec, uh, it was their money that was on the table. They did the investment in Churchill Falls. Now, we we need to get beyond that and look to 2041. And we need to do it in a couple of ways. We need in particular to recognize that 5,300 megawatts of power is a hell of a large block of power in North America. That is the lever that we have because once the contract runs out, we have no obligations to Quebec or to anyone else. We can uh, stand firm and say we, as a as CFL Co., in which we own 66 and two-thirds percent, we are going to sign contracts on an equitable basis or we're not going to do it at all. Because you see, uh, Patty, remember 
that if we don't do it that way, it means we're back into negotiating another contract with Hydro-Quebec on terms acceptable to them, and they'll be terms that are not market directed. In other words, you you now let's let's face it, with with reward comes risk. We accept that. In this case, the the risk is very limited because the facility is built, the facility is paid for, there's no debt. The the what we're looking at here as a province or ought to be looking at is the market potential of all of this power and the fact that we have uh, we it's green power we we there's a, a huge demand for it in in the, in the northeastern United States and elsewhere and uh, that prices are likely to be very strong and we should take advantage of those prices and the only way we can take advantage of those prices is if we have uh, a, a, a contract that acknowledges our ability to sell on a market basis. We can only sell if we can get it there. So come to the 31st of August of 2041, they still do, the province of Quebec that is, they still do hold a wild card because the ability to sell all of that power, 5,000 plus megawatts, still requires transmission, of which they are the go-to body at this point. I would suggest the federal government has failed the country without establishing a north-south-east-west corridor, free flow, maybe with some sort of tariff associated with it, to use other provinces and other utilities' transmission lines because it's in everyone's best interest they just capitulate to Quebec far too often but don't they simply hold a pretty solid wild card owning the transmission lines because there's no way to get the power out of there unless we build no, the, no that's that's that isn't true the if if we Probably. adhere to if we had adhere to FERC rules uh, as laid down by the federal department of energy then uh, Quebec is obligated to uh, respect fa- uh, FERC rules uh, which would mean that uh, the um, uh, that, that uh, we we know the capacity is there right now. In fact, Newfoundland Hydro should already be in there, and some reporter needs to ask Newfoundland Hydro if they have already made an application under FERC rules to make sure that that transmission capacity is available uh, to CFL Co in, in 2041. I mean, those. Uh, th- th- this is the kind of discussion that I would have expected Premier Fury to clarify, so that we understand what the principles are in go- in going into any negotiation. If there are no principles, if we're if all we're beset with is whether we might get some extra money now, and 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 that is a real a real danger. Uh, if we are beset with what is likely a very unviable uh, project at the moment in terms of Gull Island, then we are going to muddy this discussion and we're going to end up uh, being in a worse, in, in, in well, I won't say worse because it's pretty hard uh, to get worse than two-tenths of a cent per kilowatt hour. Yeah. But we are going to be in a very poor position in 2041 if we take the route of trying to fix uh, our own domestic lack of leadership for the last several years today on the backs on the back of a tw- 2041 negotiation that's really what it comes down to do you surmise that gold will be built sooner than later no I, I i don't think from all from all the engineers that i have spoken with 
the view is that Gull is very expensive power, probably as high uh, at, uh, at the wholesale level, as high as 15 or 16 cents a kilowatt hour, and that uh, the competition from renewables, uh, wind and solar in the U.S. is driving uh, the overall, as, as much as electric power is is accelerating, it, it is it is balanced and, and, and offset by the entry of renewables into the market. So we are not the, the best information that I have uh, is that Gull today cannot be built at a price that is viable in the market today, and and we have to be very careful here because we don't want. We don't want to take money that we are due in 2041 and subsidize Gull Island and still be required to export it on Quebec's terms. Sure. I mean, hopefully we're not going to be really, really dumb here again, you know. I hope not. Uh, There's too much on the line. Uh, Very last one, very quickly. What do you make of the team that's been uh, compiled here or set up? Carl Smith, who, of course, has a lot of horsepower behind him. Jennifer Williams, who was the president and CEO at Hydro. Dennis Mahoney, Deputy Minister of Justice and Public Safety. I was a little bit surprised not to see an unknown name. Someone who brings that type of business experience, maybe from out of province or possibly even out of country, just to add that outsider flair to it. What do you make of the panel? I, I think, uh, Patty, uh, that you're you're getting set something there. Uh, this is a uh, number one. I don't agree with negotiation, so uh, I, I agree. Uh, negotiations come after a statement of principles. We haven't we haven't seen that, so let's get that out of the way. Secondly, the, you're talking about a huge block of power. You're talking about uh, uh, regulation in the United States. Uh, that uh, we need to bring in substantial expertise on. You're looking at a mega billion dollar uh, asset being negotiated. Uh, this is a uh, this this is a an opportunity to bring in some very high powered advice, uh, and uh, and uh, I don't see that there. The the other concern that I have is that this is going to be very centric to uh, Newfoundland Hydro. And you have a group at Newfoundland Hydro still today, yes. We, uh, Gilbert Bennett and Ed Martin are no longer there, but the, the guts of the operation that built Muskrat Falls are still there. Uh, we, we still have major issues with rate mitigation. Uh, we still have a group of people who just like to build things and who see the welfare of the province, the, uh, the, the, the ability to provide health care and other services as secondary to uh, what they'd like to build. We have to be very careful here that Nalcor is not uh, leading in a way that is self-serving again. And I hope that we have not forgotten the lesson of Muskrat Falls. And and, and I'll say this, Patty, uh, not to dominate this discussion, but I have to say that I am disappointed in the official opposition. They have contributed virtually nothing to the debate in the last number of days when they should have been right on top of it after uh, Premier Legault left. Uh, we, we need to say to the media as well, 
This is not a time to be preoccupied with personalities and getting a story for the evening news. This is a time to be very clear as to what the issues are. And I have some grave concerns that neither the opposition nor the media are ready for this conversation. We'll do the best we can. Oh, I can only speak for myself. Um, fair enough, Des. Really you appreciate do, you do you do very well, Patty, and that's that that's not said gratuitously. Uh, I think you you've demonstrated you understand the issues, but uh, we we have to look at this uh, very very seriously. It's a critical negotiation, and we have to be prepared to sit it out and do nothing. If 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 the if the statement of principles guiding what we're going to be doing in 2041 do not become clear over the next few days. Thanks for the time this morning, Des. Pleasure to talk to you, Patty. Take care of yourself. Take care. Okay, bye bye, Des Sullivan. Uh, am I taking Jessica here, Dave? Is that what you want? Okay, let's go to line number five. Jessica, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, I'm just calling to talk about an event that we have um, coming up this Sunday at St. David's Church. Um, as I'm sure you've, you've seen, there's, there seems to be more and more people who are eating plant-based for, you know, for various reasons. Some people are doing it for health and some people for economical reasons or because they're concerned about, um, you know, the, uh, the environment. So we seem to have more and more um, supporters and volunteers who are either eating fully plant-based or dabbling in it. And um, we thought we'd have a, a fundraiser sort of surrounding that. So we're having a plant-based potluck that starts, again, at St. David's at 6 o'clock on Sunday. Um, you don't have to be regularly eating plant-based. We just want to come and check out the food. And, um, yeah, basically just thought we'd get people out of their houses. I know it's not a lot to do, you know, this time of year. So that's part of it. And um, essentially, we're, you know, it's not a huge fundraiser. We're just asking for donations at the door. You know, we'll have a donation okay. box there. Um, but, yeah, no, we, uh, we've heard actually, I mean, of course, everyone's talking about the economy. We, we've heard a number of people say that they've, you know, sort of been forced to cut their meat consumption because of how expensive everything is. So that's also led them to look, you know, at plant-based eating. Um, but, yeah, no, just thought we'd sort of incorporate that. Um, we're going to be cooking extra food. So, again, if somebody isn't in a position to make something, they can certainly pop by anyway. Um, but I also want to touch on speaking patty of the economy just as well, how much it's affecting the, you know, animals. Cause when people are struggling, of course, their pets also struggle. And I tell you, we, we have a, I don't know if you're aware, but we run a, a pet food bank for low income pet owners. Yeah. I've seen the story. Yes. Yeah. And all I tell you, Patty, I mean, the amount of people now coming for food and the amount of people who, I mean, we've always had people who are lower income or contacting us uh, looking for help with uh, emergency vet bills. Um, but it's it's just through the roof right now. I mean, I got off the phone last night with somebody who said, look, you know, I have an older dog and, and these are older people. They're both disabled um, and they can no longer really afford their dog's medication. Right. So they were looking to see if we could help them with some medication. And we're, we're working on that. We also know of a cat who died, I think it was Monday, died overnight on Monday. We kind of found out uh, too late in order to be able to help, but the cat died of a, a womb infection because her owner couldn't afford an emergency spay. So we, we hear a lot of these stories, you know, animals with broken legs for, for weeks because their owners can't afford to uh, 
you know, to get their legs pinned and get the medication stuff they need. So it's just, I tell you, animal rescue and, and of course, anybody volunteering at the gathering place or working with humans right now, too, where I think we're all in the same boat. It's just it would, you know, rip the guts out of you listening to these these stories because the inflation crisis and the housing crisis, right? No doubt. Uh, before we run out of time, Jessica, where are the wins for the plant-based potluck? Yeah, so it is, again, it's this Sunday, March 5th at St. David's Church, which is 98 Elizabeth Avenue. Uh, starts at 6 p.m. And again, you know, no no big costs associated with it. We're like suggesting a donation, maybe $5 at the, at the door if you can afford it, or you can flick us off an e-transfer for 5 bucks. It sounds great. Hopefully it's a roaring success, and I appreciate your time this morning. Keep up the good work, Jessica. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Take, Take care. care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with the newly elected president at CNL. That's Pamela Patton. And then Terry wants to talk about wind turbines, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the newly elected president at CNL. That's Pamela Patton. Pamela, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, introduce yourself to the folks uh, quickly. What's your background in the industry? Um, well, I, it's, I met my husband 22 years ago, actually, um, and it would be 22 years this June that I started fishing with him and his father. Um, nearly 12 years ago, I purchased my own uh, under-40 fleet license in 3PS. The Bradley Venture, 3911 Longliner. Yes, yes, and I have a speedboat, too. Terrific. So there's a fully newly elected board at CNL, but what are some of the topics at the very top of your agenda? I see one in the subject line here, the Fisher's Grant Program. What is it? Well, that's the Fisherman's uh, Grant and Benefit Program they put out in uh, 2020, if you remember. We spent uh, six weeks tied on. There was an uproar um, about the fishing. You know, the rest of Canada seemed to be going, but um, later in the year they put out that program to help alleviate some of the effects from us not fishing, I guess. Um, the issue at hand was they, they did it in a two-part application process. And I think it was October of 2020 that the initial application went through. So you had to then put in your 2019 taxes information and then an estimated loss that we were going to have um, for 2020. It seems a lot of people had problems when their taxes actually went through and after being approved for the grant under their application process, they came back and asked people to pay back uh, certain amounts, even full amounts, actually, with uh, no explanation. And there hasn't been an appeals process. And this one's personal to me. And I've been dealing with this since September of 2021, reaching out to MPs. We're not getting any help, right? But just very recently, we've done a DFO outreach meeting call, and it was brought to attention. And um, now having contact with DFO, and it seems like they're going to try to reach out and help. I mean, it's, it's affected thousands, right? Help how? You're looking for financial compensation, or what exactly is helping mean? Um, well, what's happening is they had given fisher people across the island the financial compensation based on incomes and whatever. Uh-huh. Um, this was a non-repayable thing, um, but they seem to have some errors there with what CRA has reported. In our case, I can't speak for everybody else, but now they're wanting everyone to pay it back, and there's nobody to call. Uh, DFO issued this. Um, there's there's no number. The only thing they're putting up for an appeal uh, would have been an email. And as far as I know, I don't think anyone's gotten any response from the email. Okay. Can you help me understand what the CRA-related error is that we're talking about? 
Well, when we'd done the applications, it was based on your taxes, obviously. I guess your gross fishing income or whatever. So they put it out due to the loss that we had uh, when we couldn't fish during COVID. And I think there was you had to have a 25% loss in income, which anyone who fished crab, it was pretty much a given due to the price drop. Um, but now they're coming back. I know personally the reason is saying that there wasn't any fishing earnings, um, but there's so many issues. And I can't tell you, I can't exactly all of them. They've come back now and want these fisher people to pay back amounts from, I've heard, from $250 to the full $16,000. Yikes. Okay, so we'll see if we can get any uh, traction on that. I've actually got a request into uh, Minister Murray, the Federal Minister of Fisheries, on a variety of topics. I can add this to the list. Uh, if you uh, get this one off your, you flip this file over, what's the next file on the top for your concerns as a leader at CNL? Well, there's, there's a lot, right? You know, the different areas have different problems. I know mackerel's up there. Um, for me, personally, I think, like, communication and education is key, right? Because right now, like, you know, I say you're not understanding the fisherman grant. I'm sure there's hundreds of people listening that are going through the same problems, right? Again, with mackerel, it seems that FFAW have done a, done a good start here now, and the petitions have been signed. And so we'll see where that goes, right? Like, a moratorium doesn't serve us well. It doesn't make sense in this case either, right? No, and uh, I mean, I know everyone's talking about that. How, from your perspective, you know, this is a tricky piece of business. We know that the uh, DFO has not been able to do the type of science they should be doing, whether it be with refits or lack of parts and new and old vessels, now chartering fishing vessels from private owners to do some of the science or ecosystem surveys. But when they, like even the FFAW, they say they had 185 harvesters uh, chiming in on a survey regarding mackerel and the strength of the stock. And a hundred or something said they've never seen the like. How do you suggest DFO incorporate anecdotal evidence? You know, I know they should absolutely be incorporating catch rates when we go to set total allowable catch. But how do you realistically incorporate what people say they see? Well, I mean, that's happening with all the sciences. It's the same with crab in our area. Like, you know, they send the fishermen out, they give them areas they see, right? That's what they base it on, what the fishermen actually kind of haul aboard, you know, the numbers and stuff. So, I mean, if, if the fishermen are doing the science on it, they, they do know. Like, we know, right? You're there, you see. Um, again, I'm not sure because the scientists are saying this stock, that the U.S. is still fishing. It's the same stock. So, I don't know how the U.S. are doing their science. I, I can't comment. I mean, as a fisher person, we barely know how our sciences are done. You know, the information is not there. Again, that brings back the point of we need good communication and, and we need education. Like, we need to know what's happening. Right. Well, I guess in these states, they did indeed do uh, the science to come up with their quota for last year. We did not do it here. But if you go out and catch and we examine catch rates and what's coming aboard and the size of the fish or the product, that's one thing. But, you know, when we're simply saying we've seen more mackerel than ever, no one's allowed to fish it, so no one really knows. We don't have any estimation on the biomass of mackerel in the last few years here. So uh, the question is, how do you think DFO should hear those stories? How much stock do you think they should put in someone saying, I've never seen so much mackerel in the bay? Well, they have to put a lot of thought into that. Okay. When you're talking to people that are there that are seeing it. 
Yeah. I, I'm just curious of your thoughts there because fishermen, fish harvesters, pardon me, would like to have what they see incorporated just beyond catch rates and stuff and beyond the science that goes into estimating the, the spawning biomass of one species or another. But in this case, we're simply only going with what people saw because we didn't catch anything, so we don't really know. And in crab, DFO, pretty good news, I think, say that there's some 200,000 tons of snow crab out there that will indeed support the industry, which had a big problem there a few years ago with uh, landings and landed value. Uh, final word goes to you, Pamela, before we say goodbye this morning. With regards to the crab, I mean, I know in 3PS they're saying it's been the biggest, healthiest crab, you know, that we've seen. Um, again, the only science on that is, is pretty much handed off to the fishermen. So if, they, if they're trusting the fishermen on the crab, then, then maybe they should do that with the mackerel. Fair enough. We'll see where it goes because when you have a shared migratory species like mackerel, the U.S. are fishing it, and even though it's a reduced quota and we're fishing zero, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. One one side is wrong and one side is right. Uh, I appreciate making time this morning. Pamela, congratulations once again. Good luck in your new role. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Pamela Patton. She's the president of CNL. Let's get back on track with the breaks. Don't go away. Yeah, Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Terry, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Good to speak with you. Good to have you on. Yeah, I got a um, few concerns, I guess, and questions about the uh, the wind turbines that are slated to go up across the island. Sure. Sure. Um, I'm just wondering, like, where we had Hurricane Fiona come through there and just devastate the area, if if we have another hurricane come through like that, like, is, does this development, will they need to have, like, hurricane insurance? I don't really know what the insurance liabilities would be, to be honest, Terry. No, no, me either. And so I'm just wondering, like, if if we did have like another big hurricane come through and, and knock all the the wind turbines down, that would be an awful state. Yeah, I guess it would be, you know, two different things here. If it was the utility that is hydro or power, and they were formally involved they'd have to have some protections and backup plans contingencies because they're providing power for domestic use. Sure. For this project, for you know a private business, at this point no provincial monies will be committed, and all for export, I suppose their own business bottom line would be driven by what kind of insurance they think they need or should have, I suppose. Yeah, well, I guess, but then if, if, if they did go down and they didn't have the insurance to clean up the, clean up the sites afterwards, um, it'd be a big mess. It would, but I think that would boil straight back to uh, polluters being on the hook, regardless if we're talking about orphaned wells or downed turbines or whatever else the case may be. Yeah, that should always be the guiding mantra for governments. If if you're the polluter, you clean it up. Sure thing, yes. Now, and, and another concern, I guess, is the 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 price on the water. I'm just wondering, does water have an, does it have an escalator clause built into it? No, not that's been reported anyway. No, well, I think that's a yeah, it's a flat rate. Uh, oh, really? For once it's operational, and, that, and that's for a hundred years or more. Well, no, the example given, and it's hard to know exactly how long any of these businesses will be profitable. I know there's a worldwide thirst for hydrogen. Uh, there's a couple of listeners that are completely and 100% all in on it. But, you know, it's interesting that you mention an escalator inside the world of royalties. Mm-hmm. My question, and I'm going to put this to Minister Parsons when we get a chance to speak with him, is so there's no royalty on the water until the capital cost is fully recovered by the proponent. And for World Energy GH2, they're talking about like some $12 billion, so that could be well down the line, and it might include some 
bookkeeping exercises as well. So no, will. My, my question for the minister would be, you know, why not an escalator? Why not a staggered royalty that it started at X and went to X times two and then X times five when the capital costs were recovered so that we would see some money coming in sooner than later? Not the full royalty. Maybe that could have been held until capital costs were recovered, but nothing until then. I don't know why that was the approach taken. The, the example they use is a 1,000-megawatt mega, project over the course of 30 years will see $3.5 billion come to the province if the usage is what is estimated to be. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and after being burned so bad on the, on, the, on the Oprah Churchill by not having an escalator clause, you think that, you know, that, that would be something that would be included in this for sure? Yeah, I mean, boy, that, that number. Uh, Hydro-Quebec buys the power for two-tenths of a cent and sells it for yeah, 8.2. unreal. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But and your insurance question, I really don't know. No, Just no, I, I think that'd be a good one to find out. And how you would, I, you know, wouldn't know where to look. Well, I suppose, you know, if we're talking about cleanup, it probably falls into uh, Minister Davis's portfolio as Minister of the Environment. Uh, but I think the guiding principle can and should and always will be, uh, if you're the polluter, you clean it up. Which also brings upon conversation regarding, like, the province always wanting a 10%-ish equity stake in oil. Because once projects are completed, then we're also 10% of the cleanup. Yeah. <laughs> so there's something to that as well. Yeah, that well, just ho- ho- Hopefully we, we get more, more out of the equity than, than the cleanup will cost. Oh, of course we will. Yes. Yes, yes indeed. And then the, the price on the land, they're, they're doing uh, just the, the market value. Uh, it seems, it seems uh, I, I guess, like, they're, they're putting these, these windmills up because we have the land, we got the fresh water, and we got the wind. So I think just going by the market value is, is going under, to undervalue the, the, the price of the land, in my opinion. Yeah, quite possibly. We also have the deep water ports and the proximity yeah. to the market. Yeah, you know, the value of the crown land, I think the most important move there was that we weren't selling it outright. It was a land lease put in place because... Who knows what's going to become of one proposal or another. So if it is not viable for whatever reason, uh, if it's not the right project, then they can't satisfy their need for profit for whatever reason. If they had to own the land, we would have created an unnecessary problem for ourselves. So I'm at least pleased with that portion of it. Yes. And if, if they if they decide this isn't profitable like for the wind aspect, can they sell the water by itself, I wonder? Sell it to who? Mm, I don't know. Water for export. Remember back when Roger Grimes was the premier, and there was some, I think it was Grimes, and there was some floating of selling water, which is a very precious commodity in this world, traded on the big board. You know, there was immediate outcry. So, no. My understanding is that's an industrial reservoir, uh, old Abitibi reservoir, so it's uh, my understanding, and I guess I'll have to get clarification, that the water and access to it is only for this implied purpose. Okay. Well, hopefully, but I'll, hopefully I'll that clarify that. Yes, indeed. Okay. And you mentioned to Mr. Sullivan about having outsiders look at the contract. I wonder, have any outsiders look at look at this 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 royalty regime to make sure we're not leaving something, you know, that we should be asking for. I don't know. That's another good question. You know, they did make mention of, because this is an industry in its infancy. There's not a whole lot out there to examine. I think there's only maybe one or two projects that are actually up and running. I did hear the minister say they did look at one example to try to understand how how they approached this wind hydrogen stuff. But, you know, an outside set of eyeballs would only be 
surmising or opining as well because there's really not a lot of hydrogen when to convert it to hydrogen and ammonia and transportation projects to look at, to evaluate best practices. But you would hope that there were some second set of eyes or 22 sets of eyes on it to make yeah. sure that everything that could be captured in this fiscal framework was and reflected in our best interest. But I'm, I'm looking forward to having yeah. uh, the minister on because there's a well, lot on his portfolio. I'm looking forward to hearing him as well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because, like I say, through 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 the Muscat Falls, we had our own economists look at it, and they they were all in on it. And look look how that turned out for us. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, no one should be defending anybody uh, regarding Muscat Falls, but the economist, I think you're speaking of uh, Wade Locke, mm-hmm. his walk away number was eight billion. Yes. And we blew past sure. that in a hurry. Yeah. Indeed. So. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the time, Terry. Okay. Nice on you, buddy. Take good care of yourself. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, before we get to the break, line four. Cody, you're on the air. Patty, how's it going? Top shelf, man. You? Uh, doing good. Listen, this is a very, pretty lighthearted story. I tweeted at you because I got, I got stuck at work, ended up busy. Um, so the whole story goes, a couple months ago, we started listening to, to the Open Line show every single morning here at Atlantic Recreation. We were in the back parts room. Always on, 9 to 12. Wouldn't Love it. Miss it. And we re- we had someone here reach out to someone that that's uh, one of your assistants or someone that works at the show, and, and she got us two Patty Daly autograph mugs. That thing was it was it was sitting on my desk since I got it, sitting in the same spot, had all my pens and everything in it. Perfect. Today, 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 I got approached by a coworker asking what my price is on it. So, so I I sold the mug, Patty, for forty dollars. That's unbelievable. I, I, think, uh, I think you're going to need to start a merchandise line. I think you're missing out uh, on this problem. That's too funny. And the poor fella could have just sent me a request. I would have sent him one for nothing. <laughs> yeah, he, he's probably listening to this right now. Apparently he's uh, a super fan. Uh, that's brilliant. Tell him I said hello. And uh, uh, hopefully good health goes with his, his uh, signed, his autographed mug. There you go. Good man. So boy, you still got the show on? Oh, yeah, it's on. Uh, well, he turned it down, so we didn't get the, the, the feedback. I didn't want to hear myself speaking. Yes, right. yes. So I'm sitting right next to the speakers. As soon as I hang up now, she'll be back on. Tell the crowd I said hello. Will do. Thanks, Thanks a lot, guys. Cody. All the best. Bye-bye. There are 40 bucks. That's a pretty tidy sum. Uh, anyway, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's take a break for the news when we come back. The topic, well, that is up to you. Say hello to the crowd for me, Cody. Good stuff. Bye-bye. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Very good. It was good to hear Des Sullivan. I knew Des when I was at university, you know. He's a very, very smart man. And uh, he certainly knows a lot about the Upper Churchill. What I phoned for today is to throw a bouquet to uh, the uh, Mercy Hospital, St. Clair's, and the the Ambulance Association and the people who work with him. On Monday, I had an accident. I was at a local uh, restaurant for something to eat for lunch, and I was with a friend of mine, and uh, we left we out our meal, and we went out into the parking lot to get into the person's car and drive back home. Now, I've had two strokes, so I've had, I forgot to use a walker. I was trying to get into the person's car, and I usually get into the front seat holding that door. 
And while I was trying to get in, my foot slipped, and I fell down and hit my head off the ground. And the person phoned the uh, phoned the nine one one, and they they uh, they said they try to get an ambulance really quick, and to make sure, since it was underground and it was icy, that uh, to be to be very careful. So within about ten minutes, the uh, ambulance turned up. The gentleman got out of the ambulance and came over and did some uh, some tests, and uh, they put me in the ambulance and they drove me to St. Clair's Mercy Hospital. When I got there, there were some doctors who knew that I was arriving, and they brought me into the emergency room. And the doctors and nurses there were just very, very good and compassionate and very good at their job. They did a lot of tests on me. And the one thing they were worried about is that since I hit my head off the the ground, uh, what damage could it have done? They also told me while I was there not to fall asleep, not to fall asleep, that could be dangerous. And so I, I try my best to stay awake. And so they they asked me more questions, did more tests, and uh, put some something on my head. Now I don't know what it was, but it cut down on the bleeding that was coming out. So after about another half hour, they told me that uh, that there was no damage done, and that I'd be free to go back to my apartment. And uh, I was very happy to hear from that. I was also wearing a New York Yankee stocking cap, one of those winter caps. And as you know, on the top of those caps, there's uh, balls of wool. And uh, that's why I landed my head. That's, that's where I got mostly smack. And the doctor told me that that New York Yankee had probably did save me from getting more damage. So went up to the New York Yankees. So thank you to the doctors and nurses at St. Clair's Mercy Hospital, who I think did a wonderful job and made me feel comfortable. And thank you to the nurses. It was, uh, it was, uh, it, I'm, I'm glad that it didn't do as much damage as it could have. And, uh, uh, lying down on the ground with your head on ice is not the most comfortable thing. So let me thank, thank you for coming on. I know people have sometimes some trouble with the healthcare system, but when it comes to an emergency, Patty, we just got the best. Thank you very much. I'm glad you got the care you deserve, Brian, and hope you're well. Yeah, I am. Good man. God bless. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, like uh, usual, it's the getting into the system. Once in the system, by and large, people get the type of required, dedicated, professional, compassionate, and empathetic care as they should. Let's go to line number five. Brandon, you're on the air. Patty, I'm glad to talk to you this morning. How are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? I'm doing good as well. Um, I just wanted to to raise something... uh to the public's eye that I'm not sure I haven't seen any stories about it and you know I kind of think that it's a pretty big deal but um, out here in Donovan's Industrial Park there's a recycling plant Hebert's Recycling okay 
And they, uh, I think there was a couple weeks ago, we had a really high winds, like 100, 110 kilometer per hour winds. And um, they do a lot of plastic recycling out there by Patty. And their baler, I suppose, where all of the shredded plastic goes, the door of the baler was left open. And in the wind, I would say probably hundreds of pounds. It was it was truckloads, like a whole industrial baler full of microplastics were spit out and blown across Donovan's Industrial Park, probably in a kilometer or more square area. Yikes. And I have I have seen no no articles about this. I'm not sure if, if the provincial or the municipal government is investigating this, but this sounds to me like, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the, the detrimental effects of microplastics of course. on the environment. I feel like everybody, you know, it's it, it has been more of a recent issue, I, I will concede, you know, microplastics are only coming in the public eye maybe the last um, uh, five years or so, but it seems like this is a industrial-level microplastic contamination. And I can only imagine that all this plastic, because there's still so much of it in the snow, Patty, so much of it on parking lots, in businesses, all over the road, it is everywhere. And I can only imagine that the longer it's out here without being cleaned up, the longer it will be biodegrading into microscopic plastic pieces that will, you know, only cause more untold harm to the environment. Fair enough. Uh, to be honest, it's the first I heard of it, Brandon. And the microplastics, eventually, most of those will end up in the waterways. They'll be washed away with whatever rain or what have you. We know right. about the story of the microplastics in the world's oceans. They're an actual part of the food chain now. Those microplastics are ending up in the species that we catch and consume. So consequently, we're eating them. And so that's absolutely a big issue. You know, we focus in on the big pieces of plastic in the water, in the water whether it be that circling swirl of tons upon tons and thousands of tons of plastics in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific Ocean but it's the ones you can barely see we see the pictures of you know the six ring from your six pack of beer stuck around the head of a turtle or around a, uh, a gull or something those are the ones that grab the headlines but the real impact on humans is the consumption of the fish or whatever species from the water that we eat that have consumed the microplastics so it's exactly. part of the food chain it's, uh, yeah, and it's certainly scary to just see such a large quantity of what you know, right now, Patty, it's it's smaller than your fingernail, these tiny little shards of plastic. But once they're out here in the wild, in the conditions, in the weather, it's only going to, like you said, get out into the uh, ecosystem through the waterways. And it just seems like such a large amount that I'm surprised that nobody's talking about this. I'm surprised there are no environmental agencies who are rallying for some kind of cleanup of this. I'm surprised that Herbert's Recycling isn't paying fines for this. Well, now that you've put it on my plate, we can do some follow-up. I'm sure the newsroom is hearing this story as well, and maybe someone in the newsroom. Uh, of course, uh, it's not up to me what they do, but maybe some follow-up can be done here. I will do some myself. Uh, I appreciate you telling me about it because I didn't know anything about it. Right, and that's why I wanted to call you today, just to, to put that out in the public. And uh, I'm glad I could, you know, uh, tell that to your listeners today, and, and maybe uh, the right person will hear it because, you know, I I think it might be a bigger deal than anybody out in the park seems to to see. Sounds about right to me, Brandon. I really do appreciate the info. Well, thank you for your time, Soren Patty. I'll let you. I hope you have a nice day. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. There we go. It really is helpful when people let me know what's shaking. We try to keep our ear to the ground and finger on the pulse, but there's always so much happening. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, register in the queue to talk about a town hall coming up in the town of Bonavista, talking about healthcare and some pretty troubling story coming from the town regarding the uh, emergency room closure and. The family attributing a death to the fact that the emergency room was closed. We'll breach that or broach that with Reg when we come back. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to the executive director at Trades NL. That's Darren King. Darren, you're on the air. Hey, Petty. How are you this morning? Doing okay, sir. How about you? Good, good. I'm glad to hear. Yeah, I'm doing well as well. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I, I wanted to uh, call you back on two quick issues if you had a moment. One was to finish off a quick chat we had on the Beta Nor project, and the other was just to respond to a couple of comments that a caller made last week around skilled trades workers and wages. Sure, go right ahead. Yeah, so on the Bay of the Nord, I just uh, made some comments last week, as you would recall, around an interview that was completed with the uh, the new country manager. So just, I guess, by way of an update for us, we've uh, we sent a letter off to uh, the new individual welcoming to the province and seeking a meeting, and, and we're hoping that we'll get an opportunity to have a chat and get some more uh, details and transparency around the project and you know exactly what subsea work means and what the topside work might look like and what the benefits to the province might look like. You know, at the end of the day, I guess the message I, I want to leave with you and others is that Trade Denel is, is very much engaged to try and find a way to make this work for everybody. We, you know, we want the project to proceed and we want to get maximum benefits for the province and everything that we're doing publicly and otherwise is, is all with that in mind to try and make sure that project uh, goes forward, uh, comes to the pro- province, and uh, we get some good opportunities for uh, local residents. So that, that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, we do have an update going out to our membership probably in the next uh, three or four days, just giving them some sense of what's happening with our campaign and the kinds of things that we've been up to. I, You know, I kind of wonder what the motivation is. I know the, the man was asked, and that's Equinor's, uh, I guess, head of operations for this part of the world. And, you know, the vague references to their preference being to do the entirety, whether it be the whole top sides and otherwise, uh, in Asia was the vague reference once again. And then uh, also quite opaque is doubling subsea infrastructure work. Okay, How, is, that, is that because there's been an expansion in the amount of recoverable barrels of oil out there? I don't know. Then there's the thinly veiled reference to more benefits to the province. So I even kind of wonder what the motivation is there. Is that to put a little bit more pressure on government to know their, so that the public has a little taste of their stance in these negotiations? So I just found the whole story a little bit odd. Yeah, I, I kind of tend to agree with you on a, on a number of fronts there. Um, you know, I'm, my guess is new person to the province probably laying down a marker uh, a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit of pushback to some of the public noise that they've been hearing, I suspect. Um, I, you know, the, the only thing I read into to it, to be honest with you, there's a few things there that I obviously disagree with, and I spoke to you about that. But I did take positive from it, and the positive I took was that uh, the gentleman spoke publicly and seemed to be willing to engage. And, you know, we have not seen that from uh, – uh, from this project or Equinor since the announcement five or six years ago uh, that uh, with any detail. So, uh, you know, I, I do take positive from that, that it appears that they might be willing to have a chat and engage us. And, you know, as, as I think everybody would recognize, you know, if this is going to succeed, it, it's got to be something that that's uh, that's acceptable for Equinor and the government. And Labor's going to have a voice in this one way or the other, I mean, that you know, and the public. So it, it's better to, to have the discussion with some transparency and detail. So as an example, not to be Labor, but as you said, when you say we're going to double the subsea work, well, for starters, we don't know what the initial subsea work was because nobody told us. So even telling us that you're going to double it still means nothing to us. You know, what does it mean jobs? Does it mean local fabrication opportunities? Does it mean supply and sector opportunities? Like, I think those are the kinds of questions people are going to need answered so they can start to get a sense of what this project really means for the province. Yeah, and the, I mean, the subsea work, we're talking about a footprint on the seabed the size of the Avalon Peninsula, so it's massive. So obviously there's opportunity down there, but I'm not 100% sure what that means. 
Uh, and fair enough. Let's talk best case scenario, worst case scenario. If you don't get some additional work, top size, for instance, to be done here, then there will be the pushback from you and the people you represent. Let's talk best case scenario for jobs and people in the trades. So Beta Nord goes ahead. World Energy goes ahead. 300 wind turbines and the similar project and exploits goes ahead. The question then very quickly becomes, where do we get the workers? So, you know, I, I'm sure we can't commit tradespeople to all these projects if they if they get off the ground in similar time frames. So what kind of problem does that pose, whether or not be for political decisions and or for reality on the ground of how many jobs we can keep here and do by people from <clears throat> here? Well, I, you know, I, I think it, it in some way it poses a good problem uh, because oh, it, it, there's, there's no doubt it, there will be challenges uh, for the trades workers. But, we, you know, we, we have a membership database of it fluctuates between 15 and 18,000 depending on any given month. But it's, we're using the number these days around 15,000. Um, we have them all across Canada and, and people will, will gladly come home in a moment's notice once the project starts and there's an opportunity to work from home. But, but you know, the other opportunity, opportunity that that this offers is that it, if there's transparency and we know what these projects require there's an opportunity for our union training colleges and uh, people like college of the north atlantic and others to to train up offer opportunities to train up carpenters or millwrights or pipe fitters or iron workers or whatever's going to be in demand so uh, you know I, I think that presents a really good problem as long as we have good advanced planning so that if we know that for example wind hydrogen projects are going to start in two years, well, you know, most most primary entry training for a, for a skilled trades course is about nine months. So if you've got a couple of year notice, it's no trouble to train up uh, a number of skilled trades in a variety of craft areas if that's what's required. So, I, you know, I think that offers a, a very good opportunity for labor, training schools and government to partner with industry if that's what we're facing. So, yeah, I mean, the best scenario, I think, is a very good scenario for the province and offers lots of opportunities for those coming out of high school and those who want to switch careers. Yeah, maybe my question wasn't as focused or as concise as it should be. Uh, I guess where I'm going is, how do we fight the good fight on the front regarding Bay de Nord when there might indeed be jobs for the trades that are not involved with Bay de Nord and they might be all out on the Port of Port Peninsula or they might be in Central or they might be regarding uh, expansion of mines and critical minerals in Labrador. I guess that's where I was going is how hard do you fight this fight when there's so many different fights or so many different areas to be pushing for jobs? Yeah, no, your point's well taken. And, and you know, I, I mean, I, again, I think it comes back to information and engagement and, and understanding what the future holds and what the opportun- what opportunities are, are out there uh, for everyone. I mean, that's, that's a big part of the equation, uh, not only for me, representing the 16 unions and the 60-plus craft we have, trades we have, but it's also for managers who have to face, you know, their union members on a daily basis. And it's a big a big decision point for those who are looking at the trades as a career. So uh, I think transparency is important, um, but I think balance is important as well, Patty. There's no question, you know, as we get a clearer picture of what the future holds for construction work and skilled trades opportunities, finding the balance to understand that we can do the X piece of work for Beta Nord and we can do Y piece of work for a hydrogen project and we do Z piece of work for something else. Uh, once that be- As that becomes clearer, it makes it easier then for organizations like us to understand where we need to put our efforts and our focus. Yeah, because I would imagine the people you represent, by and large, just want a job as opposed to it needs to be building top sides. <laughs> you know, if they're doing something, getting paid, and it's full-time, and the pay's very similar across the board, then a job is a job is a job, or am I missing something? 
No, I, I mean, you're, you're right. You're right. I, I think with the Beta Nord project, you know, just like the wind hydrogen, if and when it starts, uh, though, I, is there's strong interest from industry generally uh, and the trades as well as, as contractors to develop the industry. So, uh, on the, you know, on the Beta Nord project, the top sides are important, not just because it represents jobs and and if you said well we can get you the same number of jobs elsewhere would that be fine i'm i'm not sure that that would be totally fine because it, it it's in everybody's interest if we can continue to develop the oil industry here and our expertise to do that kind of work top size work and highly you know highly mechanical and technical work so you know it's not just the jobs i think it's the desire to continue developing the industry uh, that we've been developing over the last 20 years to continue to advance that further and further so that as oil projects continue, hopefully we continue to get more work and more technical work, which then allows us to, to develop the transferable skills over to the wind and hydrogen or the LNG projects. Fair enough. Uh, very quickly before I have to get to the news, you know, there's also a thought here that it's not just the established tradespeople that you represent in the 16 unions that are under your umbrella. But for opportunities, and once again, there's a lot of unknowns here, but inside the wind hydrogen business, you know, where do you think we are in ensuring that those jobs are grasped by us? Because there is some specific training and upskilling that might be required and seats to be created at a campus at CNA or something. Because just the established tradespeople, that shouldn't just be the ceiling. That should be the start of the conversation because it's more and more people who have those type of skills taught to them and mentored by your Red Seals that keeps momentum going as much as a project does. 100% couldn't agree with you more, and you said it very well. <clears throat> so we're, we're engaged in a, a number of discussions because there's a lot of industry partners who have a vested interest in all of this, as you'd appreciate. Uh, we met with College of the North Atlantic this week, for example. Uh, we're engaged in a, a partnership opportunity now with uh, the Construction Association, Rhonda Neary and her group, and government around trades promotion. Uh, we're also looking at a, a partnership with government to try and get a bit of research around what, the, what we may need for the future with some of these projects so we can start nailing down uh, the numbers that are going to be required, and then compare that to, for example, what we have available from the unionized sector, what might be available non-union, and, and from that we can easily deduct you know, what the requirements are going to be for the future. The other group we deal with a fair amount is Build Force, who's coming out with a, a report in a, a couple of three weeks, and they do national projections and provincial projections. And you know, the number that they're going to present, I think, is going to be pretty uh, alarming around the opportunities or the shortage of skilled trades for the future. So I think the dialogue has to happen across in, cross sectoral, sectoral sectors excuse me, in the industry. Uh, you know, everybody's got to be engaged in this in order to make sure we, that we're prepared for the opportunities. Appreciate the time this morning, Darren. Patty, thanks always. I really appreciate the opportunity. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Darren King, the ED at Trades NL. Time for the news. When we come back, Reg, you're there. Appreciate your patience, sir. Talk about the upcoming uh, town hall in Bonavista to talk health care. Beaton's got an update, and Paul wants to respond from uh, to what he heard from Des Sullivan. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Paul, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Patty, I just want to say you do a fantastic job and uh, really enjoy listening to you. Um, this morning I'm, I'm calling um, in a follow-up to your conversation with Des Sullivan and remarks made at the end of that conversation with respect to the panel that's been established to uh, look at the negotiations for Upper Churchill Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, your, your last caller, uh, Darren, 
Darren King, I believe is his name, he was he, he made a similar sort of comment um, in respect to uh, ready for all these opportunities with respect to uh, tradesmen opportunities. Um, so my point really that I want to make is, is some time ago, I think beginning uh, at COVID, uh, the onset of on COVID, we had a panel created uh, for the um, for the review of Terranova and the oil and gas industry, because Terranova was looking at dropping out, and and we had some transitioning with respect to ownership and whatnot. And a panel was made up of local industry experts. Um, I think it was headed uh, by Bill Fanning and another and, and others in the industry, like Tim O'Leary and the like. And I think that panel was very successful. And I know you had made the comment at the end of Dave Sullivan's uh, uh, interview um, regarding you know, perhaps we should have some outside experts and, and other maybe local industry experts. But, uh, and, and that panel certainly indicated that, not, not including maybe outside experts, but we certainly had local industry experts. So, you know, we seem to be talking about all of our energy opportunities in isolation, um, except for the, the remark Darren King made. Um, we're talking about Beta Nord and the benefits of Beta Nord. We're talking about Upper Churchill Falls and negotiating that. And, and it's all seemingly done in isolation. And, and what I'm calling to maybe uh, suggest or recommend, and maybe it's already happening, I don't know. But we should now start looking at an overall energy committee. Somebody in this province or a group of people in this province that are not just looking at oil and gas, LNG, or hydro in isolation, but as a complete overall perspective. And we should be planning the development of this. We should create an energy plan. Um, we have. We should have a development plan that addresses, you know, labor re- uh, availability, training, infrastructure development in the prov- province, local benefits, and we should have all this in order. And we shouldn't be at the last minute negotiating these little benefit deals and negotiating what we're going to do here and there um, like we're holding a high card uh, poker hand. We have a royal flush hand with respect to energy in this problem. Paul, be- right before, we, before we get into, go any further, you're a little bit muffled here. Is there a way to... Oh, how's that? Is that any better? That's much better. Thank you. Uh, a couple of notes. That. You know, there has been the establishment, or there is a report somewhere, about energy opportunities, a fairly all-inclusive, whether or not that comes with an ongoing panel or committee i don't think it does and very quickly just to clarify my reference to uh outside set of eyes as part of that group you know i think it would have been maybe helpful if there was look carl smith jennifer williams and dennis mahoney good people bring expertise in industry utilities to the table fair enough but someone who maybe has a firm understanding about the FERC rules in the United States and the ability to flow power to the United States and the absolute appetite of the market. Someone with experience in those types of high-level utility-related discussions and negotiations. Someone who maybe doesn't bring a Newfoundland and Labrador bias, and that's not meant to be an insult, bring that bias or possibly some resentment uh, to a negotiation that really requires a new way of approaching Hydro-Quebec, a new way of thinking about a potential partnership, a a novel way of developing an idea that might get us a so-called win, political and financially. So that's all I was getting at there, is that, you know, maybe, just maybe, someone who's not intimately involved in or has a historical relation to this contract might have been helpful. Buddy, I totally agree, and maybe I got off track, and that's, that's exactly right. Exactly right. 
And and we need a fresh eyes. We need some cold eyes, as, as you said. We, we don't want to be biased by anything that's Newfoundland orientated. Um, we should be going and maybe getting people from the oil sands development. We should maybe get uh, somebody from Norway that's in the energy industry over there. We should maybe speak to energy uh, experts such as Dr. Steve Coonan, for example. Uh, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Unsettled. And and bring these people in to help us manage what we're doing because we never seem to get it right, do we? We're always fumbling and we're not doing what's right for Newfoundland. And the world is in an energy crisis right now. And this is just a phenomenal opportunity for Newfoundland to exploit its energy resources. I mean, look at our hydro resources. Look at our oil and gas. Look at what Equinor has found out there now. Look at the LNG that's starting up. But they're talking about development in 2030. We need to expedite that and get that to market as soon as possible, despite what our federal counterparts think in terms of no business case there is a business case and we're right we're, we're so ripe for the for the benefits of this and it's i get so you know emotional about this because i just see such such phenomenal opportunities just being wasted and, and poorly negotiated and we have to absolutely get it right this time with Upper Churchill Falls. We cannot in any way, shape, or form look back at that and say, what the heck did we do there? Why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? It's got to be devoid of politics. It has to be for the benefit of Newfoundland. Sure. You know, I would add to that. There are some opportunities, whether that be in relation to hydrogen, but also I think we've kind of just a few headline grabbers regarding opportunities in Labrador, particularly in critical minerals. That is not only an opportunity for mining expansions, what have you. But we've got to change our tune here. Like, I don't think the problem should be in the business of building an oil refinery or that kind of stuff. But in the capture of a supply chain regarding critical minerals, and I don't care if you like electric vehicles or whatever, but the world does. And if you have a laptop or a cell phone, some of the pro- some of the minerals we have right here in our own backyard are part of those batteries. So let's supply chain it up. Let's make sure we just don't haul it out of the ground, sell it to someone else, and they sell back a finished product to us. Let's do as much as we possibly can because that one in the world of secondary processing is a bit different than when we talk about secondary processing of oil or tertiary processing of other uh, other industries i think there's an opportunity there that we really don't understand the magnitude of but i think it's massive exactly right and and this could be one of the objectives of this overall energy panel this energy committee looking at all these potential opportunities and now and getting it to market now and capitalizing on it because let's be honest Commerce runs everything, and we need to be capitalizing when there's a demand for such things, these rare earth minerals, LNG. We need to be getting in there, and we need to be supplying it to the world. I totally agree. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, pass that along. I'm totally uh, in agreement with your with your remarks regarding Dev and Des and your follow-up uh, remarks here during this discussion. And uh, again, just in, in summarizing, we need to get it right. We, we, we cannot afford to make another blunder in the negotiations of our, of our resources. I mean, we are rich, Patty, in resources, and we just keep negotiating such as if we have a high card. And we've got a royal flush, and we should start playing the hand like we have a royal flush. Yeah, there's a lot on the line. Uh, that's absolutely true. And, you know, there's politics involved here, no matter how much we try to back it out. Because we need a win here. It's got to feel and be a realistic victory for the province here because there's a lot of 
you know, sour taste in people's mouth, a lot of resentment, and a lot of, I would even extend it all the way to hatred of that contract yeah. and of that province. So if we, we've got to get this not only right, but we've got to come out. You know, it, it's terrible to enter into negotiations, not talking about mutually beneficial, but for one side to win. But we need the modicum of a win on this one. Uh, Paul, good to have you on the show. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Freddie. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, let's get Reg. She's been there long enough. Good morning, Reg. You're on the Good end. morning, Patty. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, thank you for taking my call. And uh, I'm calling in now. Uh, first thing I'd uh, just like to bring up is our meeting, which unfortunately was canceled uh, two weeks in a row by snow. But so looks like we got a beautiful day today. So it's going to happen tonight at, Cap- at the Math uh, Discovery Collegiate, which is the high school in Bonavista. And it's 7 p.m. And we're asking everybody, uh, the general public, to come out. And if you got any questions or whatever, we'll try to answer them for you. And there's a couple of little issues I'd uh, like to raise. Uh, first of all, uh, I, I think you're aware that uh, this past week we uh, we had a gentleman who died in the ambulance on his way to Clarenville. Yeah, I saw and, the story. He had an uh, asthma attack. He went to the ER to get some yes. oxygen and, of course, ended up in yeah. the ambulance and died en route. Yes, terrible. That's right. But, uh, unfortunately, we, we, we talked about this issue. I raised this issue before about the fact that uh, the, the emergency room being locked and staff inside and, and no service being provided. And, I mean, uh, yes, he died on an ambulance uh, en route to Clarendon, but uh, the day before... He went to Bonavista Hospital, and the doors were locked. To and and I mean, it basically to get a, a mask for oxygen or whatever. And I mean, he was denied access. So the next day, he got worse, and he had to call the ambulance. And I mean, uh, we know, Patty, that we knew this was going to happen, and we know that it's going to happen again and again unless something is done about the, the state of our hospital in Bonavista. Yeah, because now I don't know if the outcome would have been different had the emergency room been open. I have no earthly idea. Well, but there's we certainly there's certainly a lot of people thinking and feeling that maybe, just maybe, had he been seen in Bonavista, this could have been this tragedy could have been averted. I know the health authority says that there will be staff covering some nineteen days in March for the Bonavista ER. There has been funding yeah. approved for two doctors, two nurse practitioners for the community, but funding is one thing, actual human beings to take on the role is quite Any? another. I mean the I mean, the department or whoever, the government, can they can, they can announce uh, funding for another 20 doctors in Bonavista tomorrow. I mean, how is that going to help us? How is that out in our ER? I mean, this is only a joke what the government is doing. When, Patty, we've talked about those doctors who, who, who made themselves available to, to Bonavista to practice at the hospital last summer. And, you know, they're still in negotiations, some of them. And you know what, Patty? It seems to me that, that the government... Don't place any urgency on this. For some reason or another, it, it don't matter if another two or three senior citizens die. That's, that's, that's the impression I'm getting, because I'll tell you now, I'll, I'll just read you a little something now from, from a couple uh, articles. Okay, in July, uh, actually in January, the Canadian press published an article, and, and it, it stated in July that uh, the province announced last July it would offer more money to doctors in rural emergency rooms and said the effort was an indicator that the province is committed to improving wages for rural emergency doctors. 
So let me read another little article now. So remember now, this is last two laws. Okay, this is from November. Okay. And this is also from uh, the, uh, an executive with the NLMA. And what it says, Patty, is up till then, November 17th, actually, is the email, right? We have not received proposals from the, the regional authority or government on the matter of uh, uh, negotiating a, a modified pay rate in Category B sites. So five months later, the government had, had not even contacted the NLMA to even discuss the issue. So, I mean, what is the problem? Good question. Not one I can answer, but a good question. No, that's right. And, I mean, okay, here we are now. I seen on the news yesterday, uh, the minister now is going to the U.K. Okay, I, I don't know what's going on with the media. I don't know if uh, they're... I don't know if they're muzzled or what the issue is, but it seems to me, Patty, that you, like uh, I've heard, I heard a reporter just talking to Mr. Uh, uh, you know, Minister Osborne. Okay, so nobody, for some reason or another, you would you would think I would think I don't know, maybe I'm I don't think like everybody else. But if I was going to interview the minister and he was going to the UK to recruit doctors, my first question would be, how many did you recruit in Ireland for the last two trips, right? Well, they're the but questions like that they, we're asking. I know, but it seems like... So, yeah, but the problem is the minister then just keeps rolling around and rolling around. You know, it looks promising and all this, but we never get a number of any sort, whether it's between 10 and 15, between 15 and 100. I mean, there's, there's no number ever mentioned. Why? I, I mean, that's I, what I can understand. I don't know, but I've asked that question hundred times. I know. Okay, Reg, before I get to the break, sir, the where are the winds one more time for your town hall okay, meeting this evening? so the, the meeting is at Discovery Collegiate, which is the high school next to the stadium in Bonavista, and it starts at 7 p.m. I appreciate and the time. you're welcome, and thank you very much, and we appreciate it. And I'd just like to say for everybody out there, stay safe. Absolutely. Thanks, Reg. Right on. Okay, okay bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Beaton, you're on the air. Hi, Patty, how are you? Doing okay, Beaton. How about you? Oh, not doing very good. I, ever since I've been talking to you last, I've been back and forth calling the bank, the Scotia Bank, met, and trying to get things ironed out with the car and everything else. And no, they won't budge. They won't even drop my payments or nothing to, you know, to, to try to save the car and try to keep myself out of trouble. But no, I went to the bank here in Gander today, and they, I was talking to one gentleman there. He was nice enough to talk to me that, and he, you know, he said, tell you what me the problem that I got. And he said, he don't know why, you know, that the bank won't do nothing to help me. So, but no, they won't reduce my payment. So just telling me to take the car back to the to the, uh, to the dealership. I said, if I take it to the dealership, they're going to say, it's not our car, you take it to the bank. Yeah, and so I've noticed, I know the issue in the conversation. Just remind people as to why you were looking for a reduced payment. Uh because of the life circumstances changed? Well, right now, well, I mean, uh, uh, my wife was diagnosed with stage four cancer in the bowels, and she got the bag on her side, and we're out of work. I mean, we can't work. She's not able to work anymore, and uh, now we're just getting a bit of income coming in, and we're trying to get, I'm trying to get my payments reduced on the car so I could bring my wife back and forth again uh, for treatments. As I speak, I'm here again, and I'm bringing her in today for treatments today, so... 
no, I still can't get nor with the banks, and they want they want budge, they want to help me do nothing. So, uh, I don't know. I guess it's darn if you do and darn if you don't. You know, you, you just got to, you know, try to cope with it the best way you could. But it's just frustrating. And I mean, the cancer. Uh, my wife got no cure for it. She's only just taking treatments just to prolong her life, and that's about it. So. And then the bank says, oh, you know, we know what you're going through. No, you don't. You don't understand what I'm going through. You go through it, and then you come back and tell me you know what I went through and what I'm going through. But, you know, not going to be sorry if you can't help. And I know they can't help. If if they're not going to budge on this beating, what are you going to have to do? Abandon the car, sell it, and try to downsize, or what have you? Well, I told them if they don't, if they don't go, if, if they're not going to help me, uh, come and take the car. If not, I'm going to take it to the dump and they'll get it from the dump. I, I'm not, I'm not paying for something that I mean. I'm not trying to get away from paying the car, and and, and it would it, it reduce my payments and extended my my period of time to pay her off. It's going to benefit them more than it's going to benefit me. Yeah, I mean, well, compound sure interest is it. a magical thing. Yeah, I understand your plight, uh, boy. I wish there was something I could do for you. And I mean, the bank has a customer that is not trying to balk or not trying to default, just trying to be able to manage with the new reality that you're facing. So, you know, the people that I deal with in the banking world, I'd be surprised if that's the way they handle the issue here, but. And anyway, I just feel terrible for you and your wife. Well, I, well, I told them I should did this. If, yeah, I mean, if you can't help your customers, don't don't go on TV and advertise the oh, well, we're supposed to bank we're here even need us, and you're not you're not going to do it. And I mean, if, if that's the way you're going to treat your customers, close the doors and keep them closed, and let them deal with some other bank that's going willing to help them. You know, it, 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 to me, it does make sense, and I'm that frustrated and. I, I don't even know which way to turn or what even there or even what to do. And I mean, I'm going through this every day. So, you know, like I told them, come and take it. If not, I'm going to take it to the dump. If, if, if they want to go to the dump, pick it up. I appreciate the time, and I understand your plight. Uh, sorry to hear this update, Pete, and I was hoping it was going to be something more positive for you and your family. Well, I, I, I from the day I spoke to you, uh, it didn't look very positive to me, so... Uh, I figured with a, with a business like this, uh, you know, a big uh, company like that, they're not worrying about you and me, they're just worrying about their own pocket. I'm sorry to hear this, Beaton. Stay in touch. Say hello to your wife. Wish her well for me. I will. Thank you very much, sir. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Yeah, it's, you know, and there's going to be people saying, well, you bought the car, you got to make the payments. Yes, you do, but when things change, because life throws a lot of curveballs, and if just extending the uh, a number of months for full repayment of the outstanding loan, it does come with some upside for the uh, for the bank as well, right? I mean, that whole business of interest on these loans, they make a ton of cash on it. Okay, final check of the morning on the Twitter feed. Or VOCM up online, you can follow us there. Uh, uh, yes, Aaron, I get it. There's there's ways to uh, evaluate or adjudicate how much water costs. Uh, Twitter, that's Twitter. Our email address, open on VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.